Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go the Ring. I'm Bob Moore with Alec Bridgen and John Mullins. <laughs> pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. I can I can stop now, and you can just take over. <laughs> you can just tag team. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm here with the podcasting team of the decade, though I'd actually call them the podcasting team of the century, Alec Bridgen. I think century is definitely better. Yeah. And you know what? I think they're actually the podcasting team of a lifetime. And John Mullins... I only have like two lifetimes, and I'm <laughs> devoting one of them to this show. Okay. not You're not a cat, then? No. Do squirrels have two lifetimes? Every time they blink, they, they were born anew. Oh, okay. It's like a reset button. <laughs> but they can remember where the nuts are, apparently. Oh, okay. That's important. Yeah. Tonight, we're taking a look at Starcade 97. Paybacks are hell. Starcade 97 was held on December 28, 1997, at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C., in front of a sold-out crowd of 17,500 fans, 16,052 paid. It received about 650,000 pay-per-view buys. Anybody remember what last year's total was? It's like 150 or something, I think. Was a little higher than that. Uh, that was a, that was two years ago, I think. Okay, I'd say like a third. Yeah, last year was about two hundred and forty thousand. So yeah, this is about two point seven times last year's total. In fact, Starcade nineteen ninety seven gets by far the largest number of pay per view buys out of all WCW pay per views, not just Starcades, all. It's about 125,000 over the next largest, which is Bash at the Beach 1998's 525,000. Now, it's worth noting that WCW's main competitor, the WWF, has in the past far exceeded this total. WrestleMania 5 back in 1989, for instance, hit 767,000 buys on the strength of the legendary Mega Powers angle between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. Dig it. <laughs> But for 1996 and 1997, the WWF hasn't come close to those heights. Their best effort during these past two years has been WrestleMania 12 in 1996, with 300,000, while WrestleMania 13 in 1997 scored 237,000. Now, that's still around last year's Starcade, which was WCW's best at the time, but it's actually beaten by WCW's Uncensored in the same month, which scored 250,000. When Uncensored is beating WrestleMania, you know things aren't going too well for the WWF. That is not a good sign, no. <laughs> There's not really clear dominance throughout the year. The WWF is just about even with WCW's numbers throughout 1997, with both companies hovering between 100,000 to around 300,000, depending on the show. The WWF's traditional dominance, then, has vanished, and WCW has been running even with them. But with this show... 
WCW has blown the WWF out of the water with a huge total that the WWF has not matched for years. All eyes are on WCW here, and if they can pull this off, they've got a chance to push the WWF solidly into second place. I do have a note on the attendance. During commentary for the first match, which I was covering in a moment, they mentioned how full the place is. So I think it's Tanae asking, what's the latest number? 22 or 24,000 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shivani notes the last number he has is 24,300. Yeah, usual usual wrestling thing. <laughs> it's the greatest attendance in the history of our sport. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, wait, 20, you said 17, I heard him say 24. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the stadium probably only seats like 20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have no idea, but I mean, as far as I know, these numbers are accurate. Oh, no, I believe so, you. Yeah. That's just funny. It's like, holy crap. <laughs> Editor's note here. I looked this up post-recording, and the MCI Center, now known as the Capital One Arena, has a seating capacity of 20,356 people, which I would presume would be reduced for Starcade 1997, as the entrance set hides one end of the arena. So yes, quite an exaggeration. We open with an amazing video package with Sting wandering around an abandoned building as shots of Hogan and the NWO fade into view. We get occasional flashes of text. He watches from the shadows. He's witnessed the ruin of an empire. Now he seeks the ruin of one man. This is an amazing opening, actually. It really sets the tone, I think. What'd you guys think about it? It's definitely good in that sort of over-the-top 90s way, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. It's one of those things, like, you could be like, okay, this is could be the opening to, like, a TV series. Like, a mm-hmm. new TV series. Uh, the production value is really high. You know, like a cross between The Crow and Highlander. Yep. It would be good. Yeah, I thought it was. it's a totally different atmosphere than what we've seen in past shows. And with promo packages before, it's always been all, you know, the narrator talking over the top mm-hmm. of it and shots of the wrestlers, like previous matches and everything which is good yeah i like those but this just if you want something totally unique to open your show this really was totally unique yeah it's like halloween though (laughs) yeah and they're using like the game of thrones font yes yes they are (laughs) or or technically that means game of thrones was using wcw's font probably a little different but yeah 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 (laughs) see yeah yeah, there's, there's two shows that kind of remind me of. One is that show Nightman, which is around this time. I feel like I know, remember that, but I don't fully... It was based on Ultraverse comic, and it's on WGN. Okay. Because he's a serious figure who lurks, and he like sees in the dark, and he like knows people's thoughts. Yeah, I feel like I've seen like bits of that. Not Darkman. No, no, no. no Nightman. No, Nightman. Not, and not the, the song, either. And not a Mega Man villain. No, no. <laughs> The other one is a little more ironic. Is it kind of reminds me of the show Black Scorpion. <laughs> I know exactly what show you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the Mantis. Yeah, Man- that's a Mantis. very good man- Mantis. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that show kept on going. I was like mm-hmm. the only one watching it. <laughs> me and you both, buddy. Yeah, me and you both. As dramatic music plays, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the biggest night in the history of this grand sport as massive amounts of pyro go off, and we catch sight of several WCW wrestlers in the crowd. I'm not actually sure if they get counted in the attendance numbers in those cases. I guess technically they are occupying seats. So, they mentioned during one of the early matches, 
that they've paid themselves to fly there, which I know WCW, and I know that's not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, WCW never met a dollar that they couldn't waste. Yes. <laughs> they would famously, even to the end, when they're losing money, they would pay the entire roster to fly them out there, even if they had no plan to use them whatsoever. <laughs> yep. Which by 99 was like 200 people. Jeez. Not counting crew. Tony is joined by Dusty Rhodes and Mike Tanay. No Heenan tonight, which made me very sad. Yeah. Tanay is good, mind, but he and Tony serve a similar purpose. They're both play-by-play guys. Their Starcade desk is pretty cool, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tony says that they've been waiting a lifetime for this event, but there's controversy about how to select the referee for the upcoming Sting versus Hogan match. J.J. Dillon is now chairman of the WCW Executive Committee, and he'll draw the name of the ref out of a hat. Tony notes the WCW wrestlers in attendance, and we get shots of several of them in the crowd. I spotted Harlem Heat, Ultimo Dragon, Rey Mysterio Jr., Glacier, Hugh Morris, Disco Inferno, and several others. I even caught sight of Barry Darso, old uh, Crusher Khrushchev himself from back in our early shows. Mm -hmm. And... Greg Valentine is yeah. there, too. First time we've seen him since Starcade 83. <laughs> That's true. The hardest spot, because weirdly, they're not all bunched together. They're like sort of spaced yeah. out throughout the attendance. But on a lot of the hard camera shots, you can recognize luchadors, because they are sitting there wearing their masks. Yes. I know the park is on the hard camera, for sure. Wouldn't that be cool, actually, if you were just a just a fan? Yeah. And you look look to the side, and you're like, oh, it's Rey Mysterio. I'm literally walk- watching Starcade with Rey Mysterio. Yeah. Or in your case, La Parca, obviously. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you go back to your chair and there's a guy wearing a Cyclops mask. You're like, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> that would be Cyclope, by the way, who is a real wrestler they have employed. Dusty says that destiny from the time you want to be a great athlete leads you to a final place. He goes on for some time about destiny bringing people places and says Sting versus Hogan is an example of why people train for wrestling. He says, it's time to hitch the horses to the post and get through the swinging doors, because there's a fight about to break out. And Tanay, during this, is visibly having to hold back laughter. It's a great bit. Bar fight. Is, is Dusty confused and thinks it's a spring stampede? I don't know. But it's just, yeah, there's a wonderful shot of Tanay just really, really gritting his teeth, trying to yeah. hold himself That's back. Good, yeah. And Tony, by now, is used to working with Dusty, I think, so he's just <laughs> lets it go. Tony says it'll be the biggest fight ever, but also mentions that they got a note from the NWO saying that Kevin Nash, who was supposed to face the Giant tonight, would not be here. It's time for our first match, so let's go to the ring. So our first match is The Iceman, Dean Malenko, versus Eddie Guerrero for Guerrero's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this match is Charles Robinson. The general story is that the Cruiserweight title has been very hotly contested throughout 97. They're really focusing on that, having lots of big matches and a lot of, particularly a lot of title changes. Just about every show for a while, like pay-per-view, seems to have a title change, which definitely is too much. <laughs> There's not like a long-standing storyline between Malenko and Guerrero, at least specifically for this match. They've just faced each other a lot over the Yeah. Now, do you think the cruiserweights became more important after they did New Japan because there was they had a larger roster of that and they kind of highlighted those kind of matches? I could see that maybe helping to bring them in because 
it's it's in mid ninety six that you really start seeing an uptick of those. Yes, and um, it's definitely becomes a very big thing for WCW over the course of that year and over the course of this year. Like I that, can't recall them even re- mentioning cruiserweight and yeah. Previous, uh, the closest Starcade. we had was like I don't know on Starcade I think eighty four or something. We, we did, had yeah. like a junior heavyweight or something. We do, yeah. And that's a vast. I remember you mentioning at the time this is trying to be that kind of match, but it's not quite there. <laughs> yeah. It's two generic white guys that are like 240 pounds. Yeah. I mean, they're flipping a little bit, not really. It doesn't have a stereo or anything, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they don't have a cruiserweight title until mid-96. Uh, I mentioned that on the 5 show because it's uh, Shinjiro Otani is the first WWE cruiserweight champion oh. in a match held in Japan for some reason. So the title's only been around for about a year and a half at this point. To my point about title changes, they mentioned during this match that Malenko is a three-time champion, which seems like a lot for the short amount of time they've had the title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a good boy. Malenko is out first, sans vest this time. Hmm. Guerrero takes his sweet time coming out and sneers at the crowd as he does. He's a heel now. Guerrero taunts Dean and jabs at him, then hides behind Robinson, pushing the ref towards Malenko. Malenko moves Robinson out of the way, but Guerrero hits a cheap shot to start off the match. They trade off with punches and fighting for holds to start, before Malenko largely takes control despite Guerrero's attempts to cheat. Malenko controls with strikes, including an amazing flipping flying kick, and good power moves and counters. He even gets two three times off one hard whip to the mat. After Malenko escapes a backslide attempt and hits a power slam for two, a frustrated Guerrero screams at him to bring it, then sprints on his knees out of the ring in a pretty hilarious spot. <laughs> Those heels. <laughs> yeah. Makes good speed, all things. Yeah, yeah, good. considering he's on his knees, that was kind of impressive. Malenko backs away to let him back in, but Guerrero charges and lunges for his leg to take him down. Guerrero tries to work the leg, but Malenko comes back with punches, stopped by an eye poke. Guerrero scrapes his boot on Malenko's face and hits a low drop kick to a seated Malenko, but Malenko fires back with knees, a gut first drop on the top rope, and a lunging clothesline for two and nine tenths. Malenko keeps up the offense, and Guerrero signals for a timeout, even kissing Malenko's boots and offering his hand. <laughs> the crowd advises Dean not to shake hands, and Guerrero tells them to shut up. <laughs> Tanay, at this point very nicely, mentions that Malenko has a new baby girl, Larissa, born on Christmas night. Nice to have a call out there. Mm-hmm. Malenko dropkicks Guerrero in the face, and Guerrero rolls outside to break his momentum. Malenko continues dominating and countering everything Guerrero tries, but Guerrero finally drops behind Malenko on a suplex attempt to land on the apron, then snaps Malenko's back against the ropes. Dusty says, that'll make your back crack and your liver quiver. <laughs> Guerrero seizes control and batters Malenko's leg using the apron and post outside and even drop-kicking the steps into Malenko's leg. Back inside, Guerrero gets a leg lock and then a huge power bomb for two and a half. But Malenko gets some amazing counters of acrobatic Guerrero moves, but further hurts his own knee when he does a backbreaker. They end up on the top rope, and Malenko knocks Guerrero to the mat, but his leg collapses as well and he goes down. He manages a roll-up for two, then a power bomb and goes for the Texas Cloverleaf hold, but Guerrero kicks his injured knee to get free. Guerrero hits a dropkick to the knee, but misses a charge and spills outside, but catches Malenko with a shoulder block to the knee from the apron. Guerrero hits a top rope dropkick to the knee, 
Ow. Yeah. Malenko writhes in pain, and Guerrero goes up again, landing the frog splash on the knee for the three count and the win. Guerrero sneers very nicely at the camera as he walks off with his belt. Thoughts on this one? So it was a tricky one for me, because it's good, but I really thought it would be better. So, as mentioned, he had the baby wife of the baby girl on Christmas night. Mm-hmm. This show was, what, the 29th, I believe? 28th, 29th? Uh, 28th. 28th, I believe, yeah. Okay. Backstory for Malenko is that, obviously, you know in advance, quite a while, you can have a baby. So, no, it doesn't surprise you, you know. So, he tells them three, four weeks out, don't book me for a star because I don't know when my wife's going to have a baby, and I, I want to be there for her. It's absolutely makes sense. Yep. They decide to promote him for the match anyways. <laughs> This makes him very unhappy. As the show gets closer, they realize there's a bunch of problem with people being on the show, which we'll have to cover as they come up. And apparently they determine that him skipping the show for justifiable reasons is too much. So they insist on flying him out on the private jet just to be on the show for the match. Jeez. Yeah. The family company, really. Yeah. So I think that hurts the match just for him, because he kind of, I honestly saw, especially when I rewatched it, there is point early early in the match, I think he recovers a bit, where he seems distracted between spots. There's longer <laughs> gaps than just normal selling. Yeah. It's hard to really not end this. Because he's... Oh, and I understand why. I'm not blaming him. Yeah. The pacing is off for me. All the moves they do are good, but they just, like the flow of the match is not quite as good as you would think, given who's involved in the match. There's kind of a notable break between moves. I was noticing yes. that. I was re-watching this today. There's kind of a, a lot of a pause between these spots where normally you get kind of a flow of them. Yes. Now, in the second half of the match, they definitely work on that. But yeah, I think it's a problem in that regard. It's definitely his heart done in the match. And they, they do all their stuff well, but it's not as fast paced as you would think as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a more methodical, spaced out match. I almost wonder if Blanco was convinced they weren't going to have the match and maybe didn't do stream event planning like DDP is known for. Yeah. Event for it. So it's definitely a lot of Eddie calling the match in the ring, or at least it feels like to me. The flow seems controlled by him, for sure. Mm-hmm. I can see that. It's a shame, because I think they they could and definitely have had five-star matches and like really great back-and-forth dramatic stories, but in this case, it's just not the same. And I know mm-hmm. why, but it's disappointing. You can see that. But it's still not a bad match. It's just not a great match. Yeah. Well, I I didn't have that bad of an impression with it. Now that you have, you know, know all the backstory and everything that they had to fly him out there and everything, I I really can see Malenko as kind of being just annoyed. Because mm-hmm. one, sure. one of my notes was, man, he's really tossing Eddie <laughs> <laughs> in the air. Like every, every move is snappy, fast, and, and and raw. Like, he's not... There's no finesse to it. He's throwing Eddie over his back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, like I know that Eddie might be helping that. I don't know. Either way. That one powerbomb counter, for sure, is a real snap to it. Yeah. No, I mean, like, in, in the span of, like, one minute, uh, instead of doing, like, a normal whips him into the ropes, and instead of, you know, clotheslining or anything, he just picks him up and throws him in there and just walks <laughs> yes. underneath him. And then as <laughs> soon as he gets up, he throws him into the corner, and then... Eddie gets around, he just picks him up and throws him back over his head into the corner. So, it, you know, I was impressed with the amount of acrobatics, but <laughs> no, sure. it definitely made Malenko seem very strong, uh, even though it didn't really benefit him in the end. And there could have been a big pause 
with rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Probably why they had the list of things, but they didn't really work on the transitions. It's, you know, they would move to their spot at a leisurely pace and make sure they hit it. It was all, you know, to make up for that time. I think that's when they just put a little bit more oomph into each move. Mm-hmm. It just didn't look smooth. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I get you guys' point on that. I think just that, like you were both saying, there's a lot of really good moves here, mm. but there's not the full smoothness and the full, like, togetherness that you're used to. I still think it was a nice opener. Like you guys were saying, it does get slowed down here and there. Particularly, there's some Guerrero stalling at points, which mm. I think he at least has good character during. Yeah. But there is an impressive array of moves, and there's a nice storyline to it, I think. Um, Malenko's knee gets injured pretty early, and he's not sure if he can safely go for the clove relief. so he tries everything else that he can think of and counters everything Guerrero tries. But with Guerrero not going down, he tries the clove relief, and Guerrero uses the weakness that he gave Malenko early on to gain the victory. So there is a good connective thread to the match. Yeah. There's some very cool counters here and a lot of hard slams, and I really love the finishing sequence. Guerrero hitting the knee with everything he can think of, even landing his frog splash on the knee, was a really clever bit. The good match story and great moves still make it quite a hot opener, and the crowd was really into it. It just, like you guys were saying, wasn't as good as I was anticipating. Mm-hmm. There's parts early on when there's the pausing. I feel like he's supposed to be looking at Eddie and like be angry. Mm-hmm. It's not anger in his eyes. It's almost kind of like just like, oh, I'm here. It is Dean Malenko. Right, right. I mean, he's known for being emotional, I know. <laughs> but no, there's a, there's a couple of points just where he's, he's like, he's knocked Eddie down and he's looking at him, but he's just kind of like, oh, God, I don't want to be here. Obviously, his mind is somewhere else. Yeah. The following night, we have Nitro, in which Eddie Guerrero must defend his title against Ultimo Dragon, who, as we saw, was in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Looking very chill in his uh, his awesome jacket and yeah, just and still wearing his mask. Yeah, so Dragon wins the title the next night. So I don't know why he wasn't wasn't just put in this match instead. That that is odd. Why wouldn't you just do the title win at Starcade? Yeah, yeah, that would have been a cool moment. Instead, yeah, yeah. Dragon just gets to chill in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets better. So on the very first Thunder, they have a big thing, which we'll discuss later. But I guess they felt they need to have something interesting for the second Thunder. So they have Huichi de Guerrero win the title from Ultimo Dragon. So 10 days after this, you know, title change. Okay. The next Thunder, we need something exciting for Thunder. I know. Let's have Rey Mysterio win the title, too. <laughs> Good gosh. And that leads to Sold Out, where he must then defend a title against Chris Jericho. Okay. So, yeah. By the way, point about there being a lot of title changes. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's three between this show and Sold Out. (laughs) I'm sure they're all really good matches, but... Yeah. Why? Why not on pay-per-view? Yeah. Because they're all really good matches. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I just want to see who gets cheered for the most, so... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They have the next... Testing the waters? Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Highly contested belt. Mm Mm-hmm. Scott Hall comes out to the ring wearing a WCW tag team title belt that Tanae says is fake. NWO theme count, one. Hall very slowly takes a survey of the crowd to find out if they came to see WCW or the NWO. Oddly, the crowd chants along with him saying NWO, but clearly favor WCW otherwise, as the NWO gets big boos 
and WCW gets big cheers. People love to chant. It doesn't matter what it is. That's true. That's true. We do at least get a really adorable shot of a dad helping his little son cheer for WCW during this. Yeah. It's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> One more for the good guys. He's like over three for the last three. Okay, now I know everybody wants to see Hollywood beat up Sting. So (laughs) he's wrong. And nobody, nobody is more interested in that match than me, because at Super Brawl, Scott Hall wrestles the winner. He does not. He does not. (laughs) Lucky me. Okay, now for some bad news. I'm still going to talk. The true giant, the 610 genetic marvel, Chatner Foss, and my big buddy, one half of the real tag team champions, Big Kevin Nash. Hey, hear me out. Big Kevin Nash is not going to be here tonight. So what's the reason here? Yeah. Hey, he told me if you had a problem with it, that you could meet him down there. Down there! Wow, who got, that's a good call. Down where, you ask? Yes. You know where. So anyway, where's the referee? <laughs> Get somebody out here and tell that big goof that he won. Hey, giant, hey, Franken-goof, you just tell everybody that you won, okay? Um, Franken-goof was a scientist. <laughs> That's Dr. Franken-goof. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I respect his MD. Hall mimics a Frankenstein walk, but giant comes down to the ring. Hall looks scared of the giant as he enters, and amusingly indicates to the crowd the giant is really tall. <laughs> giant grabs a microphone. First of all, let me start off by saying I'm a forgiving man. Kevin Nash, I can understand why Kevin Nash isn't here. If I had to wrestle me, I wouldn't want to be here either. Let me also say that I'm a patient man. I'll be here in professional wrestling for a long time. That is true. And sooner or later, Kevin Nash is going to come back. And when he does, he'll find out that I'm the one two real giant. And another thing, slick... I got another message for Kevin Nash. We never find out what that other message would be as Hall charges and punches the giant. But giant headbutts him down, military press slams him, and starts to go for a choke slam, but reconsiders and hits a very nice jackknife powerbomb, Nash's own move, on Scott Hall. Hall lies unconscious in the ring as giant walks out, and NWO members Vincent and Scott Norton come out and help Hall out. NWO B-Team theme count, one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure why we couldn't have a match here instead, even if it was a short one, but I thought they did a decent enough job with this. I appreciated Hall really selling his fear as the giant came out, 
And between that, Giant's promo, and Giant doing Nash's own move to decimate Hall, I think this did a good job of giving the Giant a win of sorts over the NWO, even if it wasn't a formal match. I like Giant's very calm promo transitioning into a real butt-kicking. This was a bit overlong, especially with the gigantic pauses anytime Scott Hall talks. I'm not fond of his promo style. Yeah. But it was a pretty good segment for what it was. Why were they even booking Nash versus Giant here, though? Shouldn't have been Outsiders versus Steiners to see who the real champs are? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, they've been trying with the story, like the, the one true Giant thing, having yeah. them beat up Giant leading up to this match. They had Kevin broken his hand, so we're going to do the choke slam. But by the time this match happened, obviously his hand recovered, so mm-hmm. it doesn't actually amount to anything. It's not still broken here. They at least made a good use of advancing the story. Yes, yeah. You definitely get a sense of, you know, something has happened. Giant has gotten a win of sorts here. It's just, it is a little weird that they don't just go do a, ma- do a match between Hall and Giant then. Or- mm-hmm. well, they did. It just was very quick. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> it's the f- farthest I've ever seen someone headbutted. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was, that was a good, uh, good sell of that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate Hall definitely. He does his joking around stuff, but he definitely gives giant a good reaction like the stamping when he is ready for the choke slam yes yeah yeah (laughs) this reminded me more of like a video game (laughs) than an actual like encounter yeah yeah (laughs) at least the scott hall portion was probably long in that skyscrapers match we had several yeah it, it actually is yeah yeah that was like a out a minute and the scott hall portion alone goes like a minute 45 mm. somewhere around there so yeah so we, we could have squeezed that and the Shockmaster match from both into back. this second. yeah yes you get a 10 matches instead of eight for what it's worth the reason that kevin nash isn't here mm. nash contacted the company that day notifying eric bischoff that he had checked himself into the hospital because he was having pains that he thought were perhaps a heart attack. Nash had a family history of heart problems and was known to be fairly careful about his health. At the same time, wrestling fans have long regarded Nash as resistant to losing big matches, and it has been rumored that Nash either fabricated or exaggerated his condition in order to avoid losing to the Giant on Starcade. Eric Bischoff, on his podcast 83 Weeks, on the December 9th, 2018 episode, discusses this show, and I'll be quoting him and uh, mentioning him a few times tonight. He says, at first he doubted Nash's call, but Nash did have the family history of heart problems, so when he wasn't, wasn't feeling well, he'd gone to the hospital to get checked out, which was a good thing to do. Bischoff says that the hospital at first believed that Nash was suffering a mild heart attack, and this was due to a test showing enzymes produced as a result of muscle breakdowns that are actually caused by working out but can also be produced as a result of a heart attack. So it's a test that legitimately was showing that he uh, that he was potentially having one. But can show false positives. But yeah, showing false positives. Thank you. That's a much better way of wording it. <laughs> so Bischoff feels that Nash's worries were legit and not an attempt to avoid jobbing to the giant in this case. I certainly share doubts about Nash, but at the same time, I know the sort of things that can start running through your head when you aren't feeling well and there's a family history involved. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, I've seen the giant match we do get sold out this ends better for the giant 
than that one does. Okay. Our second match is a six-man tag. We have Vincent, Scott Norton, and Randy Savage, accompanied by Miss Elizabeth, versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, with Ray Trailer, accompanied by Ted DiBiase. The referee for this match is Scott Dickinson. So this is a couple of storylines sort of intersecting. So the first storyline is that the Steiner brothers, after a lot of issues getting them, have won the tag titles off of the Outsiders. The Outsiders, of course, as we saw earlier, are disputing that, mm-hmm. and basically go around for three or four months wearing tag belts that aren't real. Man, it makes Kevin Ash feel better. He gets to wear a belt and he doesn't actually have one. Yeah. That's kept the Steiners in the crosshairs in NWO, which is why most of why this match is happening. Their manager, Ted DiBiase, was one of the original six in the NWO, but left it for a bunch of reasons to manage them instead. So more animosity between those groups. The other story is that Ray Trailer, the former boss slash Big Bubba slash five or six other names at the time we've done with the show, <laughs> he had been also been part of the NWO. I believe he joins during the recruitment drive they do. They have a year of the Wizards are against us ultimatum and a bunch of people join, which is the first sign that the group's kind of getting bloated in a way that it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. That's how you get Scott Norton and other people involved. And you're like, I don't know about that. Ray Trailer, um, for a number of reasons, leaves the NWO, which obviously, given that for life thing, and they say in the song insistently, they're not fond of you doing. So, as he kept being targeted by them after leaving, the Steiners, being stalwart WSW people, joined with him, and that's where he got this match. Okay. And as I understand it, this was actually originally supposed to be Vincent Scott Norton and Conan. Correct. Yeah, Conan was originally booked for this. Rainy Savage is actually really not booked for the show at all. Which is, which is very strange, yeah. Yeah, Bischoff, uh, I think on the same podcast, talks about that. Basically says, you know, book everyone for every show. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's Rainy Savage. You're paying and a lot of money. Rainy Savage and it's Starcade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Without going too much into people's personal lives, there's an issue with um, Conan's girlfriend um, medical issue, and he chooses to stay with her, and thus he's not available for the show. So at last minute, they said about Randy Savage, which, all things considered, as far as replacement partners go, it's a pretty good placement. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if, you're, there. if you've got to find somebody quick to take someone's place in the match, Randy Savage is a pretty uh, pretty amazing person to, to bring in like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Good surprise. Yeah. Sadly, there's no one that replace Vincent, but oh well. Norton and Vincent come out first, and interrupt announcer Dave Penzer as he starts to announce their original partner, Conan. The Steiners, Trailer, and DiBiase are out next with the real WCW tag team titles. I love Rick's jacket with the bulldogs on the shoulders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like a half a car, I think. The metal ones, yeah. Yeah. Scott Steiner is from the Mirror Universe tonight with his goatee. Mm-hmm. Finally, Randy Savage gets his own entrance with Miss Elizabeth. NWO theme count? Two. There's a weird, gigantic sign in the crowd that I noticed, crafted to look like a giant hand, doing the NWO's wolfpack gesture. Someone spent entirely too much time and effort making that thing. (laughs) Macho challenges Harlem Heat, and takes his sweet time going to the ring, until WCW head of security Doug Dillinger orders him to the ring. Scott Steiner and Randy Savage start us off, and by the way, we have... 
two Steiners in the match and also two Scots in the match. So I'm going to be referring to Rick and Scott by their first names and Scott Norton by his last name. <laughs> just to be clear. You could just call him Flash. No. Oh. I like Bobby's idea. Yeah. That's his, his, his name is Scott Flash Norton. Oh. Apparently he's really good at arm wrestling. Yes. He beat people in a flash. flash. Scott Steiner and Randy Savage start us off. Scott gets the better of it at first, and Savage slaps him, so Scott slaps him right back. Savage whips Scott into a knee from Norton, then drops him on the top rope and chokes him, tags to Vincent and Norton in turn to keep it up. Norton gets a nice counter of a double axe handle into a kind of elevated fireman's carry. Back to Savage, and Scott gets an amazing double underhook to one-armed powerbomb. Looked so cool. Really good, yeah. After a military press by Scott, everyone gets in for a brawl, and WCW dumps the NWO guys out. Trailer kind of sadly seems like an odd man out, as Scott and Rick do their tag team pose. Savage hides behind Elizabeth to get space for a tag. Norton asks for Rick, so Scott tags Rick. They're mostly even, though we get our first Steiner line in a long time. Yeah. Kind of an ugly power slam by Rick, and he tags Trailer. The NWO beat Trailer up in their corner. Tagged to Vincent, and Trailer murders him with a spine buster, <laughs> which Vincent sells via leg spasms. Oh. No, I didn't notice that. No, yeah, he just like smashes him down, and you can see Vincent on the mat just going <laughs> with, with his legs twitching. He went to the Devon Dudley school of selling. Yeah, it's, it looks very cartoonish. <laughs> but the spine buster is awesome. Yes. Trailer, Scott, and Rick trade off beating Vincent up until Vincent dodges a trailer splash for a tag to Norton. Norton lands strikes and chokes Trailer, and Savage takes advantage of the Steiners protesting to the ref to get in some kicks. Vincent tagged him for his own shoddy kicks, but after they collide, Trailer's up first to tag Rick. Rick runs wild and slams each NWO guy, and Trailer and Scott dispose of Norton and Savage. Rick lifts Vincent on his shoulders for Scott to DDT him off the top rope in a terrifying spot. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of feel you hadn't seen that before. Yeah. It is a terrifyingly amazing spot. Yeah. Scott goes for the pin, even though Rick is the legal man. Norton saves, and Rick knocks him out of the ring. Scott gets a top rope Frankensteiner on Vincent. Savage saves. DiBiase protests to the ref. Scott gets Savage up top, but Norton catches Scott with a kind of electric chair drop to set him up for the big elbow from Savage, for the three count and the win. I'm pretty sure that Vincent and Rick were the legal men, but I might have missed something. NWO theme count? Three. (laughs) Thoughts on this match? There's plenty of action in it. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a point. Like, actually, I'll take that with one caveat. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When Savage is not tagged in, I don't know where he is. He's not on screen. He's probably just sitting down, (laughs) relaxing or something. (laughs) Cameras all over the place, but the Steiners are always engaged with another man or, you know, someone's on the outside while they're doing their stuff inside. You know, it was nice to see Trailer doing big power moves alongside. Mm-hmm. He's known for that, but like the Steiners look huge and he's yes. still doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get the whole uh, Savage. He was more into posing on this one and taking his time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, he did a good performance, especially for someone that's a substitute. Yeah, you kind of wonder if he's not involved in the match that much because he was called in late. Yeah. Or that he doesn't have time, especially with Savage being known as, like, DDP, uh, a planner. Yeah, he was famously meticulously planning all of his matches out. 
So he has a day to book a six man match. Yeah, I don't think he has time. Yeah, yeah, he's do he's doing his own thing, which I think is good. And but there was a lot of times where I was like, oh, he's still in the he's still in the match. <laughs> he, uh-huh. show, he showed up and like broke a tag, and then this he's out. <laughs> yeah, he's probably down the floor of the Liz, but at some point, they might guess. Yeah, I tend to do that a lot in matches. I did like that um, second to last move before they do the the elbow drop, the electric chairs, which we called it. Yeah, I think that's called the electric chair <laughs> drop is when you pick a guy up on the shoulders and just kind of drop backwards. Yeah, that's what it's called, yeah. I like that when he was walking up to do it, he's just like, just walking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no, as he's just watching his, his teammate get punched in the corner. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> and they did it. That was nice. Yeah, well, like John's saying, there's definitely a lot of action. It's a little disjointed because it's, there's six people. Obviously, the Steiners wrestle pretty similarly. They got their own moves, but there's cohesiveness in there. And there's mm-hmm. fairly cohesive with them and Trailer. He has his own sort of roughneck style of, like a spine buster is not Arn Anderson's spine buster with the spin and everything. No. It's just like up and you're down again. It's a brute force spine buster. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely fits as a third man for their group, I think, mm-hmm. as much as anyone could probably in the scenario. Other than maybe someone like Ben Wag could probably fit really well too, but he's mm-hmm. a pretty good fit for what you have. But yeah, obviously, the fact that they've put Savage in last minute does definitely affect how much he's in the match. He does sort of come in and out. I think he definitely helps the match up for me, at least because nothing else I know when he's in, Vincent's not in, and Vincent is as. Almost nothing, really. Yeah. He has that one palm strike. looks pretty good. Yes, that's true. But otherwise, it's like choking on the ropes or choking on the ground or choking you again. Yeah. Some other other place he could find. <laughs> <laughs> I can recommend the match in the sense that if you don't like Vincent, he spends a lot of this match getting beaten up. That is true. That is true. I was actually kind of annoyed at that. I You know, I wanted one to see him do more, more and not just be pushed around. The, the thing is, John... He has no more. <laughs> no. What um, you saw him do is is, is generally it. all he does in matches. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> when he was brought in, they played up his boxing background, which meant he just spends all his matches punching or kicking you. Yeah. Or choking you, because that's all he can do. Yeah. He had the one moment to shine in WDF when he beat DiBiase. Yeah. Weirdly enough, this is not addressed, by the way. Then both in the same match around each other, but... That is true, yeah. I mean, admittedly, they've been around each other for a long time to this point, so, Mm. you know, maybe they've already mentioned it before. Could be. There's a bit of a miscue on the timing for the ending as well, and if I'm going to notice this, because DiBiase gets on the apron before they set up the corner spot for the Mm -hmm. finish, and I don't know what he's protesting. He's at the protest, like, nothing that seemed to have happened... I think he's protesting all the breakups of Scott's pins, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do we still have the rule where you only have one one break? And I don't know. <laughs> it's WCW. We have no actual rules, I think. Yeah. Earlier, we had Eddie Guerrero, should have been DQ, let's be honest, by putting the steps against his leg and then kicking them. Yes. How is that not a DQ? But I guess that's not. But yeah, he's obviously, he's there to protest to distract the referee for this spot, but he's early... So he just gets up 10 seconds, 20 seconds later and does it again. Yeah. So that, that's a little miscue for that. I like that Scott looks so strong. It's kind of a shame that they just have him take two moves and go down at the end, unfortunately. Mm. At least one of them is the big elbow. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it could be a lot worse. They could have him lose to Vincent, but, you know. Yes. This is a point where he gets to look so strong and then it just a real abrupt stop to it like that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There were good spots to this match. 
especially Rick and Scott's fast sequence of cool moves towards the end, but this was pretty dull to me. There wasn't much of a story to it. It's just guys hitting spots on each other and trading off being in control. When the faces are in control, it's better than when the NWO guys are, I think. Vincent especially, who, as you guys mentioned, doesn't (laughs) really have much more than a few really basic strikes. But... I do have to give him credit. He did a pretty good job selling all the offense from the faces. No, sure. Oh, yeah. He's the guy taking most of the offense in the, on, on their side, so he's actually quite good at that. Yeah. Even Savage doesn't really do much on this. At least Norton gets a couple neat power counters. This doesn't feel like a big, noteworthy match. This is the show that's supposed to be the culmination of the WCW versus NWO angle. So this should be a big, aggressive, energetic match. But it just kind of felt to me like the sort of thing they'd throw together to fill a few minutes of TV time. It's just a basic match, nothing more. It's decent, but not interesting. They could have had a stronger performance, I think. And to your point, story-wise, if it had been a straight two-on-two tag match with the tag tiles on the line. Yes. And been, say, Norton and Savage. Yeah. And you could still have Vincent out there at ringside, which is his general position in these matches. It's being adjacent to the matches, not actually in them. Yeah. And they trail out to, to back them up. Yeah, sense. I think Vincent does pretty fine work character-wise. Yeah. It's just his wrestling, he doesn't really seem to do much. Mm-hmm. So For sure. Well, they could have highlighted his boxing ability, or at least have, give him a couple spots where he, yeah. he looks like he's getting ahead, and then just they throw one punch too many, and then it's a series of moves back to back to back to back, and then he's out. You know, mm-hmm. He's good at selling all of them and go from there. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly things you could do. It's not a particularly memorable match, and it could have been. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a six-man tag with the Steiners, Ray Trailer, and Randy Savage all in it. And Scott Norton, I'll add, too, as you know, because he's a, he's a big beluka anyway. Yeah. So, I as well add Vincent. He's there, too. Nah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd, you'd expect there to be more noteworthy events well they didn't plan savage so that yeah that, that is true yeah. factor yeah it's underwhelming i think given some of the people involved yeah i, I didn't feel that bad but i was just whelmed oh okay mm-hmm. <laughs> baseline level you were you were even whelmed yes something like that <laughs> plain old whelmed do you know why vincent is named vincent no it is a rib on Vince McMahon. Oh. Because the same guy, when he was over in the WWF, was known as Virgil, which was a rib on Dusty Rhodes, Rhodes. whose actual name is Virgil Runnels. So, yeah, this, this poor guy has spent his entire career being jokingly named after people in rival companies. I believe later in WCW, he is actually named Shane. Correct. Too, and you're just, which is after Shane McMahon. That's so it's just like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shame is pushing to do more. They could give him a valet, but Stephanie, can we change Stephanie? Yeah. Wrestling together have been great. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been, but it'd been funny. Sold out in a lot of ways is a makeup show for this show. Mm-hmm. So we already have the giant Nash match. We didn't get this show, we got on that show. We got a rematch of sorts for this match as well. Another six man tag. The difference is Vincent's out. He's traded out for Buff Bagwell. So it's Scott Norton, Buff Bagwell, and um, Conan. Oh, I was hoping they would put Conan with Savage again. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. F.S. Steiner is there, still tag champions, and that goes on for a little while. Still contested publicly by the NVO, but there's no actual blow-off to that. They just say that they're all tag champions, and then Steiners don't care. Okay. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> Others do it. They kind of ignore it because they, they know they're champions. We go on the stage to Mean Gene Okerlund, who shows the hotline, 1-900-909-9900, and welcomes J.J. Dillon to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, here in Washington and across the country and around the world, I want to introduce to you the chairman of WCW's executive committee, Mr. J.J. Dillon. And Mr. Chairman, I want to bring you in with one thing in mind. I mentioned regarding the hotline tonight, a lot of rank and file. J.J., these are people that are not scheduled to be here, but yet they're here apparently representing WCW. Can you clear the air? Gene, as I've looked through the ranks of some 24,000 people here tonight, I've seen virtually every wrestler under contract to WCW. I think it's a tremendous showing of unity. WCW has a lot at stake tonight. Nitro's on the line, the big match between the legend Larry Zabisco and Eric Bischoff. And also there's just a tremendous amount of interest in this match that we've all waited a year and a half for. And one of the matters that needed to be cleared up was who is going to be the referee. And Sting waiting a year and a half for this match obviously wants to know that he's going to get a fair shake. Hulk Hogan, Hollywood Hogan, the reigning champion, he's got an interest in who the referee is. And it seemed like the only fair thing to do was to take the names of all the referees, put them in a hat, have a drawing. I've done that with uh, the members of the executive committee observing and the name that was picked out who will be the referee for tonight's main event is Nick Patrick. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait a minute. J.J. Dillon, in all due respect, that is going to raise a lot of eyebrows. Oh, now, wait a minute. Uh, Nick Patrick is duly licensed. He's an excellent referee, and since his reinstatement, I can find no criticism whatsoever with any of the matches he's officiated. So he will be the referee for the main event tonight, and it is official. Well, I guess that's the political, politically right thing to do. I guess in this political environment, Nick Patrick to be the referee in the greatest title bout of all time between Hollywood Hulk Hogan from the NWO and tonight here at Starcade, the return of Str- uh, Sting after a long, long absence. <laughs> Needless to say, a very exciting return of Sting. Gentlemen, let's get back to you, Tony, back at the broadcast. Captain, very excited. <laughs> Oh, man. Exciting. That's, that's that's a Bob-level flub at the end there. <laughs> the return of string. He had one extra shot that night. Yeah. I thought this was just a short, but perfectly fine segment overall to interject some tension for the main event. I'm not sure that I buy that if you're setting up a random draw to get a fair referee, you'd even include the one referee who was solidly with the NWO earlier in the year. But it does add suspense to the storyline. Will Nick Patrick betray WCW again and side with the NWO, or will he prove to be a good, fair referee? I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure it's going to be the latter. Last year was just a momentary slip, right? No, yeah, absolutely. Everyone He's has- back to being the the most honorable referee once again. Everyone has moments that they mess up, yeah. Give him a bit out. So, two notes, two notes on this. First, when they originally announced that Bret Hart had signed with the company was joining... They announced that he would be the referee for the main event. Yes. They then changed their mind on that at some point, and did a whole storyline where 
he gets a point as referee for the mat, the semi-main event with Eric Bischoff is dead. Secondly, the point of that story was that Eric Bischoff didn't trust any of the WCW referees for his match because his match is super important. Mm-hmm. So they trick him into taking Bret Hart by saying he's part of NWO, which is they've been sort of hinting at that. So he's okay with Bret Hart because of that. But it makes no sense when you look at this one because the drawing is all WCW referees. So what difference would it make which ref that Hogan doesn't trust is the referee? Yeah. See, this is the sort of thing where I think that they should have just, as a spectacle, put like one of those little baskets in the middle of the ring and then did it. Actually do it on the show. Yeah. And then yeah. and then later on, you know, when they're sweeping up, it, they all say Nick <laughs> There you go. <laughs> you know, that would have been a good little blurb or something. Yeah. So we could have had, say, Eric Bischoff, Missy Hyatt on the front of the stage with a big bowl and drawing things from it. Ironically, with uh, Larry Zabisco, I believe. Yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> who's his opponent tonight? I think that would have been fun. No, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. It feels weird that we don't actually see the drawing. Yeah, it's the same rule of coin tosses for war game matches. Yeah, we're assured that they happen, but we never see them. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> Just trust us. I'm looking forward to something that's fair. Yes, very fair. Down the middle. <laughs> I'm not biased against him like you guys are. I don't, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm not, we're not biased against Nick Patrick. We're oh. biased for Nick. Patrick. Yeah. Oh. Well, what are you? I know you're... Can you buy, be biased for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Our third match is Goldberg versus Steve Mongo McMichael. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. Obviously, Goldberg was not here last show. Yes. So that's a big change. He comes in about the middle of the year. So the story goes in is that he's essentially hired by Deborah to beat up Mongo McMichael and take a Super Bowl ring when he won with the Chicago Bears. So they're going to play up the football background because Mongo played with the Bears and Goldberg at least briefly played for the Falcons. Mm-hmm. And they are natural enemies. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Football players. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so they were supposed to have a match at another sh- previous show, but they played the angle where Mongo apparently attacked Goldberg and takes him out backstage, which, remember that when we're much later in the mystique of Untoppable Goldberg, he can apparently be beaten up backstage by Mongo. I'm sure he, like, shot a trank gun or something, but it's like <laughs> it really takes away from his Unstoppable mystique when Mongo takes him out, unofficially. Uh, I, I like Mongo. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Could have been weapons involved. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's just funny that he's unstoppable, except this one time where he's mm-hmm. extremely stoppable. But so, they sort of bait and switch that match at a previous show, so now this is the actual blow-off match between the two of them. Very few entrance themes in WCW are more suited to their performer than Goldberg's. <laughs> Terrific, intimidating, and inevitable-sounding theme. Mm-hmm. Really, I, I, I like that one a lot. We get a shot of Raven's flock in the crowd before Mongo comes out. Still no horseman theme, sadly, but technically I think they're disbanded at the moment. Mongo does still make the horseman signs, though. They brawl on the entrance ramp as Dusty says they've got a Texican and a Georgian going at it. (laughs) Goldberg slams Mongo into the railing and carries him to the ring, throwing him in under the ropes. He picks up a table that, quote, happened to be at ringside, 
what? Literally not their last match. <laughs> yeah. I looked. It's a table that someone brought out before this match, basically. One of the, one of the fans brought it with them. Yeah, I guess so. And he leans it on the post. Mongo gets some early offense with some pretty good corner kicks and a side slam, but Goldberg takes over with a flying shoulder block for a couple two counts, shoves Mongo outside, and they brawl outside. Back in, Goldberg counters a Mongo top rope move with a punch to the gut and asks how we liked that. It, it was okay, I guess? Goldberg's in full control with a nice little roll through into a leg lock for a few one counts. Goldberg keeps it up, but Dusty knows that Goldberg's normally beaten his opponent by now. Goldberg spear, but a loose cover gets him too. Goldberg sets up the table, but Anderson stops Goldberg from throwing Mongo out through it, earning Mongo a one count. Goldberg dropkicks Mongo out over the ropes. Mongo, rather stupidly, gets up on the apron by the table, so Goldberg blocks his shoulder blocks with a knee, smiles at him, and slugs him to send him through the table. We get an ECW chant <laughs> for that spot, really? Yeah. <laughs> they, they wanted something. Yeah. Goldberg rolls Mongo in. Mongo lands some strikes and tries his tombstone pile driver, but his back gives out. Goldberg gets up and hits the jackhammer for the three count and the win. Thoughts on this one? Obviously, it's not my actual first exposure to Goldberg, because I've seen him many times before this, but mm -hmm. as far as the podcast goes, that is not a great first impression. No. And to, and to be fair to him, this is very early in his actual career, even training-wise. So I'm not judging him as, like, on Bolingo standard, expecting him to be great, but you can definitely see hints of what he can do. The ease that he picks up Mongo and carries him down to the ring is actually pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sliding him in. But then the trade-off is that roll-through leg lock thing is not the most graceful in the world. I actually really liked that. I thought it looked good. Uh, I mean, it's not terrible. It's, it's better than Hogan's armbar, but I don't know. Don't break the tie, was it? It was beautifully horrible. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks. Thanks, John. That was very helpful. <laughs> well, and to be fair, I'm, I'm not putting... I'm, a lot of this like, is an even blame assignment. Yeah. So it's Mongo trying to roll through on a like leg roll carryover thing, which is move. I imagine he doesn't do a lot. So I just thought it was good. I don't think it looks terrible. I just don't think it looks great. And I don't know why he's suddenly working the knee three quarters way through the match. Oh yeah, I won't debate that at all. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this: there are more terrible things in this match, so I probably didn't even this didn't look bad in comparison. <laughs> okay. Fair because we yeah. were like dropping Goldberg and <laughs> dropping each other. Yeah, and all over the place. For sure. <laughs> but yeah, there's there's stuff I can't blame Goldberg for for not being good, like just how blandly the spear is sold. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mongo doesn't need really go down from the impact. He's like hit and then falls afterwards, mm -hmm. which just looks really bad. I feel like when he did the cover didn't matter because it's like, you shouldn't get a three off of that move. Just, <laughs> like, no, do it, do it again. Yeah. Do it again to find better. The table thing is silly. The fact that it's just out there and then set up, and then Mongo decides to stand in front of it. Yes. Although, again, it's kind of an even assignment of stupidity because the way that plays out is Mongo does the shoulder block in the ring to Goldberg. I was thinking, watching this, even the second time, knowing how it ends, that he do it once, twice, and the third time he's countered. He does it three times, it's the fourth time he's countered. He just wanted to break the pattern. So you're going to do that move four times in a row? <laughs> <laughs> like, was Goldberg supposed to block it on the third one, and he just, he didn't, so he just did it again? Maybe, I don't know. 
And then why is that not a DQ? The table happened to be there. He had no control over it, despite <laughs> sitting it up a few moments prior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll give them credit for whoever, like, put the match together. Uh, I don't know who the backstreet people are at this point. But if you're going to have this, the spear as badly sold as it is, and the table spot as silly as it is, they at least have a payoff, which is him trying to do the tombstone. Yes. And not lift him up. Yes. So whoever played the match out for them did a good job. It's just, it's not played out as well as I think they hoped it would be. Yeah. The match was floppy. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there was plenty of moves. Actually, the one, not the selling of the spear, but the fact that Goldberg jumped like three quarters of the distance of the, the ring to hit it mm-hmm. was always impressive to me. It's one of those kind of moves that if you miss or mess up, it, you know, <laughs> it's kind of humorous. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it, you might actually get hurt because you fly it out, outside the ring or get caught up on the other side. There was a a lot of checking or um set up for most of the moves it seemed like mongo would pat goldberg before we lift him and, and everything it didn't really look like it was much of a coordination between the two mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was very jaunty and there was some power behind the moves but very little finesse mm-hmm. except for that one roll through which was amazing <laughs> but in comparison to the 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 cell that Mongo did at the very end, where he's like, "Ooh, I can't pick him up." <laughs> yeah, there was only one point in in the whole match that Goldberg really had any personality, and I thought that was before he, you know, conveniently pushed him into the 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 little tape. the little grin that yeah. he gives him. Yeah, that that part I really liked. Mm-hmm, I see that. Yeah, that was a high point, and and, and that that being one of the very few high points, kind of didn't set the tone because it's towards the end, but. That's one of the highlights of the match for me. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that it was not like that throughout the entirety. Yeah. There's a few nice moves on Goldberg's part, but the overall story of this match is just really clumsily put together, I think. And aside from going through the table, injuring Mongo's back so he can't hit his finishing move like you guys were mentioning, nothing really builds on anything. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the table, what kind of moron intentionally walks around from the table-free side of the ring to the side where his opponent has specifically set up a table before trying to get in? Here comes Mongo, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have much else to say about this one. Goldberg normally fights quick squash matches at this point, and I guess they were trying to see if he could go longer. This didn't really prove much of anything in that regard. I would have rather had the squash match myself. The jackhammer was nice, though. That's a good finisher. Mm -hmm. I like how smoothly it transitions into a pin. It looks very brutal, but very efficient at the same time. Yeah, sure. So Goldberg's whole part of his mystique is that he sort of is like a naturally strong person. So you see, like you see a little bit of that when he picks that guy up, and just easy can throw people around like with Mm -hmm. the jackhammer. At this point, that's fortunately he doesn't have much more than that. Obviously, he'll get better about that with more experience you could see little bits of why they like him so much yes. in this match it's just the rest of the match does not live up to that yeah i can definitely see potential in him yeah yeah this is a very green or unpolished version of goldberg he really hasn't developed his character or at least in this match they're not really letting that shine through he's not the yelling maniac that we all know and love yeah Tony predicts more of Goldberg versus Mongo in the future. That's okay, I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm good. 
<laughs> you can read the check now, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's not really much more Mongo Goldberg. Goldberg has a pretty big 98, which is about all I can say without spoiling a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a good year, that's all I'll say. We cut back to the entrance ramp, and Raven is coming down to the ring. Raven is scheduled to have a match against Chris Benoit. Raven's whole story is he did a lot of high-profile stuff in ECW, and this is around the time they start, both them and WDF, start poaching ECW for talent. It's really heavy in the next year or two. So he's brought in. The story is he doesn't want to follow the rules. You know, he's all broody and angsty in, you know, mid-90s teen, even though he's a, an adult. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Adult who wears Sandman shirt, so that's something at least. Angsty Polly Shore. <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah the hair's about right. Yeah, 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 true. <laughs> so he goes about recruiting a bunch of basically a bunch of mid card wrestlers, giving them grungier gimmicks and clothing. So you get the likes of Van Hammer, Kidman, um, Lodi, and uh, Scotty Riggs to form the flock. By like a month or so early, he was challenged to a match by Benoit. And every week, Benoit comes out for his match. Raven either doesn't show up at all. A couple times, he's just not there. Other times, he'll show up and then, you know, for example, Lodi will attack him and Benoit will fight Lodi. And then, you know, next week, I'll get him. And then yeah. they'll keep building and building that up. Raven has since been forced into actually having a contract. I don't know why he was allowed to be on TV without a contract, but apparently did Dylan let him go a few weeks before he tried to really enforce him having a contract with there. <laughs> so now this is the blow-off after several attempts have been wanting to get his hands on him. This is the actual match for getting the payoff for that. Okay. Raven comes out wearing a leather jacket over a Dinosaur Jr. t-shirt, representing a band that had actually just disbanded in late 1997. Aww. They'd eventually reform in 2005. Yeah. The ring announcer starts to announce the match, but Raven grabs the ring announcer's microphone and slumps down in the corner of the ring. He's working his posture. When I signed a contract with World Championship Wrestling, I stated that I would not conform to their rules, that I would not conform to their corporate structure. Stick it to the man. I also made sure that certain stipulations were included. That I would be able to wrestle when I want, where I want, and who I want. And I've chosen tonight not to wrestle. I've what? also decided... Uh, not to get paid. I've also <laughs> decided to allow Saturn to finish off something that should have been finished off a long time ago. The destruction of Chris Benoit. Quote the Raven, nevermore. <laughs> Why? Saturn enters to an exceptionally annoying siren sound. Seriously, that was giving me a headache. Air raid. I won't want to attempt to copy it. No, yeah. Dusty says Saturn deals in pain, blues, and agony. Tony talks up Chris Benoit and says that he has a lot of nicknames, but one of them might be The Buzzsaw. So coming up next, Dick Slater makes his surprising return to challenge Benoit to a fight and give him the first two rounds. Yeah. <laughs> Benoit comes out and grabs the microphone. Best part of the show. Quote the Crippler no more! 
I don't look at reality through any veil, nor do I see the truth through any veil. It is what it is. Things are as they are. And I am who I am. When I rest, I rest in reason. Wow. When I move, I move with passion. And there's nothing I feel more passionate about than inflicting pain on the raven. Well, he laid that out. Wow. <laughs> so, they had to do something to cover the fact that Raven is not well enough to do a full match, as he is recovering currently from an inflamed pancreas. So, yeah, another change of plans all of a sudden on the show. This is kind of the case with this one, I guess, overall. Mm -hmm. Yes. Raven does a decent enough job here and keeps it short, doing just enough to come off as a whining heel. Benoit does not do a very good job. He wasn't known for his promo work, and this is a prime example of why. To be fair to him, I'm not sure how much notice he had to prepare for this, but still, I think it would have been better for him to just come on down and glare at Raven or go after him and get interrupted by Saturn. I don't know if his promo is really changed by Raven not wrestling him or not. I feel like if Raven was booked to wrestle him and actually did wrestle, the promo still works regardless. Yeah. It's not really like I'm I'm fighting Saturn instead of you. I'm more wondering, like, did they even have promos mm. planned? Or did they add the promos purely because Raven's not wrestling? Ah, I gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. I thought it was a little bit of a comic relief. Mm-hmm. He's like a diehard villain. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to give his reasoning for taking Nakatomi Tower hostage. <laughs> or one of those towers, whatever. Yeah. And Nakatomi it. Plaza, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I think it, they did about what they could with it, but it's it's pretty clear this was not the original plan. Yes. So our actual match is Chris Benoit versus Saturn in a Ravens Rules match. That's a no-disqualification, false-count-anywhere match. The referee is Mickey J. Oddly, I was looking up referee names, and uh, IMDB also shows this same ref's picture for Billy Silverman, but that's a different guy. In fact, he's the referee for the very next match. <laughs> Raven starts to get in the ring, distracting Benoit, but Benoit spots Saturn charging and chops him down. You can definitely spot Benoit glancing back to see if Saturn's charging yet, as Saturn waits for his cue, though. Saturn sports one of the dumbest haircuts I have ever seen. It's like he's wearing a scouring brush on his head or something. <laughs> Rapid sequence to start, with Benoit quickly countering out of everything Saturn tries and beating him up in the corner, then trying to invite Raven in. Raven stands very still. Saturn escapes more strikes with a cool, fast suplex, and they trade blows. Timing seems a little bit off. Benoit catches a kick and hits a dragon screw leg whip. Benoit counters an attempt by flock member Kidman to interfere, but when Benoit and Saturn end up outside, Sick Boy knocks Benoit down, and Kidman hits a pretty amazing shooting star press off the apron onto Benoit. Raven calmly watches as Benoit crawls back to the apron. Saturn takes over with a cool second rope leg drop, with Benoit propped on the ropes, gets a headlock, and gets a neckbreaker for two. Tony points out that Saturn is working Benoit's head and neck, even though Saturn's finishing hold, the rings of Saturn, targets the arms. Excellent ascending springboard moonsault by Saturn for two. 
The rope saved Benoit from multiple pinfalls, but he does get a two-count of his own off of a cool diving counter to a knee strike. Saturn oddly forgets that this is an ODQ match and breaks off choking when Jay warns him. Saturn Brainbuster gets two and three-fourths. Benoit Sunset Flip for two. Odd spot as Benoit clotheslines Saturn down, but falls over like he'd knocked heads when he clearly didn't. Saturn pokes Benoit's eyes and abuses the head and neck some more. Saturn up top, but Benoit hurls him to the floor. Saturn dodges a baseball slide, but Benoit smoothly catches a clothesline and twists Saturn into the Crippler crossface on the floor mats. This is false count anywhere, so that could potentially end the match. Mm-hmm. So the entire flock runs over to beat Benoit up. But Benoit escapes as Saturn tries a springboard moonsault, and Saturn takes out the flock instead. <laughs> I was getting ready to wonder what the flock was going on, Dusty says. <laughs> but thing is, Gray's dad joke for the show. Yes. Nice to see. Uh... Back in, Benoit hits a monster clothesline, a snap suplex, and the swan dive headbutt. Benoit fights off the flock, but Raven distracts him, and Hammer hits him from behind, allowing Raven to hit the even-flow DDT. Saturn puts the rings of Saturn on the unconscious Benoit for the win. Tony points out that Saturn working on the neck and head the whole time was to set up for Raven's even-flow DDT, so a nice little twist in the match there. Thoughts on this one? It's interesting, because I watched it with you the first time, not knowing all the backstory with Raven and that, and I was kind of mixed on it. I felt like it was, like, there wasn't a lot of story in the match itself. Kind of like, to a certain extent, with the uh, Malenko-Guerra match, it's well-performed, but, like, there's something missing, like, it didn't Mm -hmm. quite feel right. Then I found out stuff with Raven and why he's not actually wrestling, and on upon rewatching, actually, I kind of like it better the second time, which is rare. I usually kind of stay the same on second viewings. So, knowing that this match is put together very last minute, the impression I got is that they booked this match assuming Raven would be okay, and obviously he wasn't. So it was just, it's not like the new weeks out this match is going to be here. Yeah. Aside from things you pointed out, like win for Q, and there's one in Snafu where they try to do the um, body press and they go over the ropes and then quite work. Yeah. Other than those, I mean, there's a couple, you know, a couple little more like that. Match, I think, works pretty well for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. As weird as it might sound, all things considered. The way the match set up where basically Benoit is fighting, has to fight the entire flock to get anywhere, it makes him very sympathetic as a face. Yeah, yeah. Because he was fighting up, you know, fighting from beneath there. It's a shame he didn't have any people that might help him. Any, like, two or three or four people, maybe, <laughs> that might have been friends with him to help him out. I do wish that they didn't have how overbooked the ending is, where they all going to interfere, like, three different times. Mm-hmm. I'm almost disappointed that the the most important man in the match besides Raven for the finish is Hammer, of all people. <laughs> I don't want to get the rub to <laughs> get the rub to Hammer in this match. At least all he does is distract him. Yeah, he hits him the one time. But yeah. yeah. But aside from that, I thought it, wor- it worked pretty well overall. I thought they, they built a good story in the confines they had, like they mentioned with the work in the Neko for Raymond's move and not Saturn's. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. And on the on the point of why, like, the horsemen, who are, I think, disbanded, but obviously still close, don't interfere, at least they did kind of explain Mongo's not doing it by, mm-hmm. he just got beat up by Goldberg, so sure. kind of makes some sense there. Mm-hmm. That's true. Very strange no-DQ match. <laughs> there was a lot more traditional aspects to it. 
but I actually enjoyed Saturn's performance. I mm-hmm. didn't think he had the worst haircut in the world. I actually kind of thought, uh, this is my first time seeing him, kind of remind me of like a hybrid between Guile and Zangief. <laughs> like like a mixture of baldness and, and crazy hair. And, you know, yeah. it had Guile's pants and everything. He's a little bit more burly. But anyway, I, I thought it was a decent performance. Each had some decent spots. It was nice to see Benoit actually come back and, and, and do with a, some aggression here and there. But for the most part, you know, he had to deal with the whole flock. And honestly, I kind of wish the flock interfered more because the, <laughs> that one spot at the end, you know, he does look like he's overcoming a, a greater challenge, mm-hmm. you know, only to be cut short. He's gotten that far and he finally gets his chance to deal with this person's had that soliloquy in the beginning and taunted him and, and everything that he was going to get some retribution. I, I really thought there would be more meddling. <laughs> <laughs> it feels odd to say because there is quite a fair bit of interference in the match, but it definitely feels like this is an ODQ match. You're all clearly willing to to just pile on. Why isn't this match just Benoit basically versus the entire flock the entire time? It makes it more interesting drama. Yeah, yeah. I mean, story, but it's just like explanation-wise. It feels almost like, you know, if they literally started the match out with Benoit fighting off the flock, so they're recovering, and then it takes them time to get to that second mm-hmm. point, that would make more sense, maybe? Well, I think the problem is you're looking at the flock as being like this really intelligent group. That is true. Bear in mind, Van Hammer is wearing a mesh tank top. Yes. So, Are they all Corvids? Are they all Ravens? Because Ravens are pretty smart. I would assume so. Okay. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. It's like the second smartest bird, supposedly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. They could have done it better. They could have all been perched on, like, the rope, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or, like, looming in the background, like, Carrie and Berger just going to wait until he messed up, and then they all swarmed him, and then he drove them back out, and they all, like, flapped and went away. <laughs> I think that would have been a much cooler narrative. Yeah. So, you want to dress like the bird people from uh, Buck Rogers? Yeah. I would be okay with... Uh, medieval doctors with the mat- bird mask. Oh, those plague doctor masks? Yes, yeah. that would be amazing. Or even the thing from um, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village where they're like in those big creepy masks and uh, <laughs> like long tendrils <laughs> like scratching the door. Um, I think they could have done a lot more drama with this and they only really, maybe one or two other points. It was nice to see Saturn change its orbit and, and take out the flock mm-hmm. but the ending was probably the best part for me. So, you do you notice with Kidman when he comes in after he interferes that he's like scratching himself? Do you notice that? No. Oh. So, he does his move and he's like itching and looks eyes are unfocused. Huh. They're trying to make it look like he does heroin. Oh. <laughs> that's serious. That's his character. That, that's his gimmick. Yeah. That's his it's, gimmick. His heroin. And he's effect. like scratching himself like awkwardly and like his, his eyes are all blackened from not sleeping. Yeah. It's just weird that. That's this gimmick. Yeah, I'm the guy that does heroin. You know. But also, do shooting star presses off yeah. the apron. But my question is, if you do heroin, can you learn to do a shooting star press? I, I, don't, I can't disprove that. Are we advertising drugs? <laughs> I mean, you'd be less afraid of breaking your arm like Chris Jericho. I guess, I guess that, that is so. Yeah. Does this seem also weird to have Saturn do the, the hold on someone that's unconscious? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, the idea there, I guess, is that he has to be the one to win. And they're kind of calling it a submission, I guess, that he passed out in the hold. But I mean, if the guy is out, you can just call the mat. No, he can't. He can't say Or he could just put his foot on him and pin him. But yeah. Yeah, for me, this got quite sloppy at points, but it was still a fun match. We had a lot of creative moves, especially on Saturn's part. He's very fast and amazingly nimble for a guy with so much muscle. Mm -hmm. They didn't quite seem to have their timing right at points, and there was some miscommunication. But again, I'm not really sure how much prep time they had for this, so a lack of polish isn't surprising. Despite all that, they kept a pretty fast pace, and they made a full-fledged story. And it was interesting to watch Saturn build to Raven's finisher as a good foreshadowing of that interference. And good on Tony for being sure to point that out. Mm Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that they had to do this at Starcade rather than the Benoit versus Raven match that the story was building towards. You really want to do the blow-off here if you can. But what we got was fun, and Benoit got to look quite good with rapid comebacks and fighting off the flock before the numbers just became too much. It did make me want to see more of this story, so I look forward to that in the future. Um, I will definitely give Benoit props for how far he jumped for the diving headbutt. Yes. As much as I wish he hadn't done the move so many years... The fact that he covered three quarters of the ring was really impressive. Mm-hmm. As is coming the pattern, sold out would feature the actual singles match between Raven and Benoit. <laughs> Guy to pay for the show, and I'll pay for it again. Yeah, I guess he's better now. Um, about yeah, three four weeks goes by. So I got yeah. better. <laughs> Our fifth match is Buff Bagwell versus Lex Luger. The referee for this match, as I mentioned, is Billy Silverman. Otherwise known as Mickey J, according to IMDb. <laughs> you know, all white refs look alike. Yeah. I'm excited for this. Lex Luger, basically in the absence of Sting, has forced to become the major face of WCW as far as going to singles titles for the company. So he's he's a reliable guy that'll show up and wrestle the matches for them. So he, of course, is a big target in the NWO. And thus, Buff Bagwell, who joined as part of the Your Whistles Are Against Us initiation, to go from being um, Marcus Alexander Bagwell to Buff the Stuff. Yes. Which is a name you get to, got to use in his later career as well, which is good. Um, he's, um, basically, the, he's the guy who's fighting because he's the cocky, know-it-all member of the NWO. So he's the most natural person to pick a fight with a guy like that. He brings joy to my face. He does? Yeah, because he's enjoying his role. Like, he is like a sleazy car salesman, and he's having a fun time doing it. <laughs> I, I, there's not, I'm not saying I enjoy that part of it, but the, the guy is, is really celebrating that role, and I appreciate that. I think yeah. you and I have precisely the opposite reactions to both. Oh, his fashion sense is amazing, too. <laughs> I do love... The red and black sleeveless leather coat. It actually looks pretty cool, I think. He is yeah. pretty annoying, Bob. Yes. <laughs> but he does it well. <laughs> okay. It's like a palate cleanser. <laughs> I love the coat that he comes out with, and the mm-hmm. theme count too, by the way. Sadly, Buff kind of kills my goodwill by creatively, quote, dubbing Lex Luger, Lex Loser. He shows off a crowd sign reading Buff is the Stuff. It's been a while since we've seen the former Marcus Alexander Bagwell, and he's become much more annoying and punchable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Luger still has his very catchy theme. Kind of weird hair this time, though. Did you guys <laughs> feel like that? It's like there's something off about it. 
as weird as this sounds, Luger looks years older rather than one year older with his hair down and then with it up. Yeah. Like to me. It could only be a me thing, but he looks older just because the hair is down. Okay. I don't know. It, uh, he has used a flat iron. He has strained it a little bit. <laughs> it's got some nice waves. Um, he's probably using the argan oil, you know, making sure that it's sleek as his is the rest of his physique. And oh, and I know exactly. I know exactly why I like. I'm, I'm sorry to go back to Bagwell. Go, go ahead, go ahead. But I have a very strong impression of him because he reminds me of Bennett from Commando, and. I don't know why. I think it's just the the, be- the hairline, you know, the, the beard and everything. Yeah, I, I can see that that, that general look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy him. I just enjoy the amount of effort he's putting into it. You, you, can, enjoy, you can enjoy him if you want. That's I do okay. like Rick Rude, so I don't know. <laughs> do I have a type? <laughs> he hasn't started wearing his stupid hat yet, so there's yes. that. Yes, he has a hat. Bagwell gets a hat. He has a top hat later. It looks really dumb. I thought he would have, like, a giant pirate's hat or something. No, sadly. <laughs> His ex-part tech owner has an eye patch, but that's unrelated to being a pirate. Yes. So the guy would have a giant blue pirate hat with, like, a stuffed parrot on it. <laughs> It'd be amazing. There you go. Okay. And maybe a working cannon that shoots <laughs> confetti. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they had the one that um, Johnny B. Bass. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, they that. just repurposed that. He is a One Piece character. <laughs> <laughs> trying to return to avoid covering the match. It's okay. Yeah, a little bit. The defense yeah. mechanism. Yeah, yeah. They shove each other around the ring, and Luger proves the stronger. Luger spits on Bagwell, who dramatically falls like he was punched. Well, that's a first, says Tony. <laughs> Luger continues dominating and hits a slam, and military presses Bagwell considering hurling him to the floor, but dumping him in the ring instead. Luger clotheslines Bagwell out of the ring, and Bagwell calls for Vincent, who comes down the ramp and gives him some positive reinforcement. Luger wins brawls outside and inside the ring, but Bagwell pokes the eyes to take control and uses basic strikes and choking to wear Luger down. Vincent joins the fun when Silverman is... When Silverman... Silverman! (laughs) Silverman! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Leaving that one in. Almost as good as Goldberg. <laughs> yep. The tag team. Goldberg and Silverman would have... have yeah. That's an awesome tag team. It could be a good uh, like 80s cop show as well. Yeah. Yes, there you go. This fall on NBC. Vincent joins the fun when Silverman is lecturing Bagwell about the choking. With Luger on the ropes, Bagwell turns Luger's head to the camera and says, Hey, Mom, I'm not doing so good. Bagwell thinks he's funnier than he is. Luger gets a brief comeback with a big boot and diving clothesline, but he's still dazed from Bagwell's stunning offense, so Bagwell recovers first and covers for two. Bagwell rear chin lock and headlock, interrupted by a brief Luger comeback, back to the rear chin lock and sleeper, just as I feel my soul leaving my body. Luger finally keeps the arm up on the third check on the sleeper and gets his knees up on a Bagwell splash. And that starts the true Luger comeback with clotheslines, atomic drops, and a running forearm. Vincent tries to interfere, and Luger hurls him into Bagwell. The announcers say the ref could throw this out, but he cares about the match too much. Darn. (laughs) Also, what? Bagwell knocks Luger into Silverman to knock the ref out, but Luger gets a power slam and puts Bagwell in the torture rack. Randy Savage runs in, but gets military pressed and racked himself. Scott Norton comes down with what looks like Rick Steiner's dog collar wrapped around his hand and decks Luger, then drags Bagwell on top and wakes Silverman 
for the three count and the win for Bagwell. NWOB team theme count three. You can't put Savage in B team. You can't. You can't call it that. Well, no, no, the, no. The B team theme is for Bagwell. I, 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 okay. <laughs> I spotted a Sting fears Cartman sign in the crowd. It is definitely the nineties. Oh yeah. <laughs> Miss Elizabeth runs down to check on Savage and helps him walk out as Vincent nicely lets her take most of the weight. <laughs> Good good guy. Great gentleman. If Savage wasn't coming down, who do you think would come down in this place? If he wasn't, you know, booked for this show? I guess it probably would have been Conan. Yeah. Oh, I suppose. Okay, you're right. That yeah. makes sense. Never mind. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? My main note was slow plotting match. <laughs> I will give a minor peek behind the curtain with my creative process for this podcast, which is a really pretentious way to say it, I know. So, some matches that I find really slow and boring and way too long, I do go back and watch again. Others, I do not. Mm-hmm. For instance, the 30-plus minute Sting Hawk versus the Nasty Boys match, Future's Back. I watched with Bob and it didn't bother watching. Yeah. No. Yeah. So <laughs> It did give us the Scorpo Hawks, though. That's true. So that there is Something that. good came out of it. Yes. Yes. Questionably good. <laughs> well, once we get the shirt, it'll all work out. Yeah. I'm just going to get a brand <laughs> right there. Okay. That won't that won't be a questionable decision in a couple decades. We'll color it in. <laughs> what the hell is this thing? <laughs> Anyways, I mentioned that because I did not watch this match more than once. I watched with Bob, and I'm like, nope, not a fan again. <laughs> so I, I'll purpose saying I don't hate Buffagwell's actual matches. Obviously, the character is intentionally punchable, although he definitely goes a step above that. Uh-huh. And I've seen him act in two movies so far, so that also doesn't help. I don't expect a great match from Nesto. I can expect he can do good matches when he's got good opponents, and for the reason, they book it to not be 15 headlocks. Yes. And chin locks. Weirdly, this match was planned in the long run, but yet has that constant stop and start feel like they're calling a match in the ring. Mm-hmm. Like the British Bulldog Bret Hart fam- match famously is Summer two, where he has to coach, supposedly has to coach Bulldog through every spot because he's forgotten all of them. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly stopping to tell him the next six spots. Mm-hmm. They planned this for a month, so I feel like they would have had this worked out by now. I guess this was the plan. Yeah. To be really boring and feel like a Scott Hall promo in a match form. <laughs> I would say my biggest issue is that we don't get much actual proper Luger selling. Yes. You can't really hear it. He's doing it. Yeah. But the miking on this show is weird. Mm-hmm. Like, there's points on the show, too, where I'm sure the crowd is actually really yelling and you can't hear them well. Mm-hmm. So I think the same thing has happened with the Luger selling. There's only a few points where you actually get to hear it. Yeah. I think a lot of the cameramen are actually in the crowd because they keep on cutting to the other wrestlers in the crowd. I mean, in other parts of the show. Yeah. And it looks like everything is panned in. So then the mic might be picking that up if they're using those mics. Yeah. Now, there is a guy standing on what he's usually dubbed the fat guy step. Because there's a little step next to the ring that usually Jackie Crockett, who is a large man, would stand on and film from wherever the ropes. In this case, mm-hmm. it's not him. It's a different guy there. Yeah. You do see a bunch of times during the previous match, you see him almost get taken up by um, Saturn, for instance, being shoved yeah. nearly into him. And at one point, you get to see him 
pretty creatively actually he's trying to film on the floor so he has a camera he's holding it down like by his legs and pointing i'm like that's actually creative i'm covering that into the bagwell match because it's really interesting <laughs> i'm discussing cameraman in previous matches now that's that's not a good sign is it, it? is not a yeah. good sign uh, the other big thing i have issues obviously is how we book the finishes especially given the setup we have here so I, I can assume that the people that are farther away, like Laparka and Cyclope, or like four or five rows in the back somewhere, or Lodi and his, you know, in the flock, who may or may not be back at this point, I understand them not doing anything. But so just in the front row, we can easily hop with a little battle barricade. We have what Harlem Heat, Ultimo Dragon, Alexios out there. Mysterio, yeah. thank you. Mortis is there. Glacier's right next to Ray Mysterio. Oh yeah, yeah. Greg Valentine, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not picturing him hopping over any barricades anytime soon. Yeah, it's true. But so, are we supposed to believe that this is a show of solidarity, that they're here for the show? And when they, it was blatantly seen to win matches, they're like, huh. Yeah. There they go again. It feels very weird that not one WCW wrestler jumps in to assist. Yes. Yeah. You could easily have this version's ending happen. They, they interfere and say they stop Savage. And then Norton somehow come up from the other side and attacks yeah. him. If you really want to have this screw job finished, that's fine, I guess. But the fact that that heals two different times, three if you count Vincent, run past all these faces that should be fighting the company against the cheating, and they just kind of go, "Huh, yeah, that's not good." It's bad enough finish as it is for me because overbooked, and it's a screw job finish. But the fact that the faces could could easily help and don't is extra insulting. Mm. I clearly like this match more than you guys. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Just no, because enough. it was like like a palate cleanser. Like <laughs> after the previous ones, it's not often that I see someone that, you know, maybe it was the mic situation, but there's very few times that anyone's louder than Luger. Mm-hmm. My term that I came up was windbagging <laughs> because <laughs> he was so loud. <laughs> When he was doing when he was doing the move, not necessarily getting hurt, mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't boring to me. I enjoyed. They had some good exchanges here and there, but you know there was some disjointedness. But I think where they had a pause or something like they filled it with their characters. Hmm. That that stupid look, look at me, mom doing so. <laughs> that was dumb and everything, but it totally fit the Flash and all the other crazy stuff that he had done before that. So there was never a point where they weren't giving a good performance, even if they were standing still on the mat. Even during the the headlock and chin lock spot, even during oh, that? you mean the new the nouveau bear hug? Yes. I think I honestly zoned out during those parts. <laughs> there we go. And I was just thinking about everything else that was working <laughs> for me. So you got the Cliff Notes version of this match inadvertently, and that's why you like it more. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> basically. <laughs> no, I, I get you, though. He does have a lot of character. I mean, even Luger does. But, you know, like, I, I enjoyed... From the very beginning, I was like, okay, I have... I gotta see what this is. <laughs> mm. It kind of carried me through the match, even through the monotony and, and repetitiveness. I know that Al doesn't like these endings or anything, but I think <laughs> the ending is the only acceptable ending to have the outcome. Because you could legitimately say, all right, you know, there's no way Bagwell could beat him. So mm-hmm. this is how they did it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm much more with Al on this one. This did not have very much to offer. 
It had a little energy at the start and at the end, and it was cool to see Luger get to rack Bagwell and then Savage as well. But the middle, for me, was a tremendously boring series of headlocks, chinlocks, sleeper holds. Mm. It's okay to do a series of holds if you're transitioning through several different ones and doing creative things with them, but done so repetitively and slowly like this, it was bear hug boring for me. It sapped the limited momentum that the match could attain. At least Luger blessedly hit a faster series of moves as it went to a finish. Trim out the stalling and the lengthy rest hold sequence in the middle, and this would be kind of dull, but short. But with it, it's very dull, and it's actually the longest match on the card. Mm -hmm. We got 16 and a half minutes for this. Just a really boring match with, like we commented, a really weird ending. So, yeah, I was not thrilled by this. Last year, I wasn't as hot over for Luger's previous match, the one with the, with the Giant. But I also gave them the doubt because that was basically they, they booked a Hogan match for Luger to fight him. It's easier for a guy with less experience to work through. Yeah. In this case, part of Buff Bagwell's character arc, per se, is anyway, joins NBO, is he says he's been the company seven years and we'll give him a chance. So there's no, you got to give him an easy match because he's not an experienced thing. Yeah. I do remember how I got through the, the holds. Okay. I was counting sting masks. <laughs> there, there are a lot of them, aren't there? Yeah. yeah. I recall that now. <laughs> There's one shot. I forget which match it's leading up to. I think it was up to the Hennig page one. They do a panning shot across the crowd during somebody's entrance. Mm-hmm. And just sting mask, sting, 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 all over the place. It would have been great if one of them was just sting and he stood up. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> and then they cut off. <laughs> Kind of like a the, like what they would do with Edge, where Edge would just like come out of the crowd and then like do a flip, you know, kick yeah. someone, then leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He could have been part of the flock. <laughs> yeah, he would fit that tone. That's when he was getting ready to become a vampire. So you know, yes, got to prioritize things. And if they got Miyavi to bite him, that would be even better. Not Miyavi, gacked, gacked. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> As long as we imitated then, like, the first 15 minutes of that movie and not, like, the remaining two hours hey, of pure depression. Gax got skills. He threw someone up in the air for, like, 25 seconds or something. <laughs> yeah. Any other defenses of this match, John? <laughs> I'm just thinking of Moonchild right now. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Probably for the best. Yeah. These two would have a rematch on the next Nitro, which Lurgo would win. So this match was entirely pointless. Okay. Interesting. Not like a match at the sold out, which you would think given the pattern of the show was coming, but no. Yeah. The next it's night, literally Nitro. Yeah. Next night. Weird. Yeah. So speaking of sold out, Savage's interference in the match would lead to a Savage Luger match at sold out. Okay. Our sixth match is Kurt Hennig versus Diamond Dallas Page for Hennig's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. Coming off of the previous show we saw, they've been doing this long-running story where DDP uh, become a full-fledged face and is against the NWO. He famously pretends to join and then attacks Kevin Nash, which does not end well for him in the short term. He would get to challenge Kurt Hennig for the U.S. title, which he had taken from Ric Flair. They have two matches in a row on effective Nitros, both which went in DQs, making it clear that DP could beat him, but the NBA would always interfere and stop mm-hmm. that. Curiously, following that second match, 
they beat up DDP, and so the next week, DDP is not on their show at all, and Flair comes out and challenges Hennig for him, which is a kind of weird. Um, he gets a basically gets a promo on the guy he just been feuding with for somebody else, and the same promo he challenges Savage to a match, which also doesn't happen. Huh? Yeah. But yeah, so the story is just the DDP clearly, if you're given a fair shot, can win the title and finally get a big winner of the NBO, but they've been doing everything they possibly can to stop it. Okay. Kurt Hennig makes his entrance. NWO theme count, four. Hennig dubs himself flawless as he walks down the ramp, which is an adequate replacement for perfect. DDP gets big cheers for his entrance, but we cut to the crowd, so we mostly miss his pyro. The leather vest is a neat look. Mm -hmm. As he takes the vest off, we see that DDP has taped up ribs. Page rolls Hennig up for two right off the bat and rapidly goes for the diamond cutter, but Hennig escapes and rolls out of the ring. Too smart for that, Hennig says. Back in, they quickly trade strikes, throws, and holds, leading to a neat spinning headlock takedown by Page into a side headlock. Hennig pulls the hair and knees Page in the ribs to escape, but Page vaults over an attempted back body drop to pull Hennig's hair and send him butt over tea kettle. <laughs> Page lands punches, and one sends Hennig flipping sideways over the ropes, but Hennig snaps DDP on the ropes to take control. Hennig abuses Page's ribs and hurls him through the ropes to the outside. A cameraman is too close, and Page knocks a part off the front. <laughs> Hennig chucks Page into the steps to send the steps sliding away. Say it's about a point six on the John Cena step hatred scale. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, I can't believe this is the first time I'm bringing this up. John Cena is an expert at flinging the ring steps as far as he possibly can whenever somebody chucks him into them, like the steps personally insulted his mother or something. (laughs) He's he's Inigo Montoya, and they're the person that killed his father. Yes, yes. From that point on, on, I have judged every time this spot occurs in a match off of John Cena's. (laughs) Yes. It's like the Muda scale of bleeding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Back in, Hennig tears at Page's rib tape and works the ribs. Surprisingly aggressive, elevated rear chin lock from Hennig. He cuts off a DDP comeback with a big boot and clothesline for two. Hennig uses the ropes on a headlock and gets a two count when Page fades momentarily. Page gets his energy back and gets free with a jawbreaker, and they trade blows. Page sends Hennig outside with a punch and leaps over the top rope onto Hennig, landing on his feet. Mm-hmm. Page uses the barricade to beat Hennig up and tosses Hennig back in the ring, then pulls him crotch first into the ring post. Dusty asks Tanay if that's called a Huracum Rana or a Johnny Come Lately. Tony says it's called crunch time. (laughs) Hennig uses the ropes to block a diamond cutter and puts his feet on the ropes for two. Rapid sequence of two counts for both off of a Page roll-up, an inside cradle, and a vicious Hennig clothesline. Page escapes the Hennig Plex, formerly Perfect Plex. That's a much better name. <laughs> mm-hmm. They called the Flawless Plex? No, they should have. Yeah. Wavering on their feet, they land simultaneous punches and collapse. Page gets up first. Hennig reverses a whip, but Page floats over Hennig and smoothly hits the diamond cutter for the three count and the win. Huge cheers as Page gets the win and heads into the crowd to celebrate. We get a terrific wide shot of Page holding up the belt in the midst of the crowd and then giving the diamond cutter sign. Thoughts on this one? 
So for me, this match is an interesting contrast to what the last match was. Because I was not as negative, obviously, on this match as I was the previous match. But I was less positive the first time I watched it. I thought it was kind of slow, like had a sort of weird pacing to it. But I really watched it again, noticing more like you tend to do. I noticed it's, a, it's interesting because it's methodical, but they punctuate every moment quite well. Mm-hmm. So they'll be slow for like 30 seconds into a big spot and so on and so forth. This is an interesting contrast to both that match and also to a Lucha match where it's, you know, dive, 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 flip, flip, flip. There's almost no breaks for the most part. They find a good middle ground between having a slow match with like sudden impact moves and spots really well. So I definitely like it better the second time. I noticed more mm-hmm. nuance to it for sure. It's less slow and more as a steady. Yeah. It's nice to see DDP finally get uh, his big moment mm-hmm. and actually win the U.S. title. Especially give, for us, we just saw him literally a year ago trying to win the U.S. title, and now he finally gets it. Yeah, yeah. Good story progression for us there. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Hennig does a really good job of selling really strongly, but he managed to sort of rein in his general desire to oversell. <laughs> like taking punches and do like double spins like he was in a Jackie Chan movie like that. He does have the uh, helicopter spin over the ropes though. He does, yeah. <laughs> he gives one in, but yeah. A lot of matches he does a lot of that. That did look nice when he rolled over. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he can sometimes overdo it to the point where it seems comical, but he's generally good about making it, it just make the matches look bigger. Obviously his matches with Brett have very famous for that. So I like that it's a slow but steady match that actually builds DDP up. And just how impactful a diamond cutter is. Once he hits it, it that's all there is. I do have to wonder, though, while I appreciate the lack of interference and screw finish, why the NWO doesn't bother to help him out, but they stop by five plot. Yeah, slight plot hole. But that's one I can accept because it gives me. Well, see, they were worried about coming out to interfere with the match because they thought for sure the WCW guys would stop them. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they have no memory of the last you know, fifteen minutes. <laughs> Very possible. Well, this is my first time seeing. Uh, I can't even think of his name. I want to say Heimdall. Um, Hennig. 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 <laughs> you know, I was actually kind of happy with the way that uh, he did make DDP look. Mm-hmm. There was some questionable jumping and, and rolling and flipping and <laughs> few things. But, you know, you got to carry that momentum. Hmm. One thing that did surprise me was uh, I actually thought at multiple points in this match that it would be over. Mm-hmm. They did a really good job where when they clashed, it was something big. It was a nice combo. Even though I thought it looked silly at the time, but they did a nice where they both took a shot to the jaw and they both just yeah. really fell down. Showing that, you know, they were equally matched. Metal Gear Solid, uh, Solid versus Liquid Snake. They do the, the double punch. It's, it's that kind of scene. It's something you would see in a comic book, but yeah. Yes, yeah. Like Superman Doom Day. Yeah. They did that, yeah. But I was actually surprised at the bit where um looked like Diamond Dallas Page had the uh, diamond cutter ready, and he caught him hitting just, like, grabbed the ropes. Yes. It looked good, and it was a nice transition from there. I enjoyed the match. It was definitely better than the last one. I hate to admit that, but yes, it was a lot better. <laughs> and it's nice to see DDP being able to come up on top, even though he has an injury and, you know, it looks like he had more to overcome in this match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really nice match here. There's a tiny bit of slowdown with a 
quick walk outside by Hennig early on and the mid-match Hennig headlock. But unlike the Bagwell versus Luger match for me, Hennig does things during his headlock, making it more interesting, and Page is really energetic fighting free to get the match's energy back. Hennig pinballed around for Page nicely, and Page returned the favor and really sold how much Hennig's offense was hurting him, especially once the rib abuse started up. Some really nice moves from both, and a great finishing sequence leading to a really nice diamond cutter out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was surprising. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's just like, I'm kind of used to that with DDP, but I haven't seen this match before. So no, me either. When he suddenly hit, suddenly hit, I'm like, oh, 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 he got it. <laughs> it yeah. took me a moment to recognize it. <laughs> Yeah, it gave it a hot ending, I thought, and a really great crowd reaction. They immediately are like on their feet as soon as they realize what's happened. Good match, and like you, Al, just how weird is it that the NWO comes out in force to help Bagwell win nothing, mm-hmm. but doesn't come out to help Hennig retain a title? It's like, get your priorities straight, guys. <laughs> there is one possibility you could put out there, which is that, so Hennig comes out wearing his traditional singlet. He changes the colors a lot, but he always wears that signal from those part. But he's not wearing black and white. That's true. So maybe they saw in the back, like, oh, I see how it is. But he does come out to their theme, annoyingly enough. <laughs> well, the, the the PA guy that worked for the NWO. Oh, uh, okay. He's, he's on his side. I gotcha. So you're telling me that Teal is the reason why this person lost? <laughs> yes. <laughs> colors are very important, John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't understand fashion. Yes. <laughs> no, it's funny because we joked on the think like, on the previous show about how mentioning how the British Bulldog joined the new Leica was planned, mm-hmm. and because then like would they have given him a black and white version of his Rupertania yes. gear? And I'm like, okay, well you have Kurt Hennig now who always wears pastels and things that. So let's see him in black and white. And you go, oh no. Look, look. Okay, so here's the thing: if you go to a formal party. And you're supposed to wear a tux. Right. If you're not wearing a tux, do they let you in? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> okay. So, when you're wearing a tux... I'm wearing a tux shirt in this situation. <laughs> like a t-shirt. See, when, 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 you're, when you're wearing a tux, what colors are you wearing? Um, maroon <laughs> and white. <laughs> oh, okay. It's that kind of party. Reverse NWO Wolfpack, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, you're right. It's a black and white party. So if you don't wear black and white, you get thrown out. <laughs> gotcha. Now that he's been put in this spot to be a strong midcard champion, DP will have lots of really interesting matches, basically defending the title as best he can, overcoming the odds. He'll sort of get sucked into the Benoit Raven feud, which will have a bunch of really interesting matches through 98. We get a shot of Guerrero talking to Mark Madden for WCW's website, and it's on to the next match. But, before we get to the last two matches, we need to briefly cover something that happened at the WWF's Survivor Series 1997. I'll be as brief as I can, as we're primarily focused on WCW, but this has bearing on things that happen in these final two matches, so it needs to be mentioned. Mm -hmm. WWF stars Brett Hitman Hart and the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, did not get along. No. Back at WrestleMania 12 in 1996, Hart had lost the title to Michaels in an Ironman match. 
At WrestleMania 13 in 1997, the expectation was that Michaels would return the favor, losing the title back to Hart. Instead, Michaels discovered a career-ending knee injury and infamously lost his smile, surrendering the title at a Thursday TV special. The career-ending knee injury turned out to be somewhat less so, only leaving him out for a few months, but did conveniently allow him to forgo losing a match to Hart. To be clear here, my understanding is that Michaels did have a knee injury, just that the severity was significantly exaggerated. Yes. Things got worse from there, as they escalated a war of words, and even got in a brawl backstage, and by fall of 1997, it was pretty clear that they could not coexist. No. Meanwhile, WWF owner Vince McMahon had signed Bret Hart to a big contract in 1996, but in 1997 told Hart, then the WWF World Heavyweight Champion, that he could not at the current time afford what he'd promised Hart. He advised Hart to negotiate with WCW. Eventually, Hart signed a contract with WCW, and his departure from the WWF was set, but he was still champion. Now, you may recall that we mentioned that in late 1995, Medusa had left the WWF while still women's champion and thrown her title in a trash can on WCW television. Mm-hmm. Hart swore that he would not do anything like that, but McMahon told him that he needed to drop the title at Survivor Series 1997 to Shawn Michaels who Hart hated, and in Hart's home country of Canada. Hart offered alternatives and got McMahon to agree to a non-finish to the Survivor Series match, so Hart would leave Survivor Series as champion but surrender it on WWF's Monday Night Raw show before he left for WCW. However, late in the match between Hart and Michaels at Survivor Series, a spot was planned in which Michaels would get Hart in Hart's own sharpshooter submission hold, It's similar to Sting's Scorpion Deathlock. But Hart would reverse out. Instead, when Michaels put the sharpshooter on Hart, referee Earl Hebner ordered the timekeeper to ring the bell, signaling the end of the match. Famously, when the timekeeper didn't immediately react, Vince McMahon yelled at him to ring the f*** bell. And that was it. The match was over, seemingly a submission victory for Michaels. The event would come to be known as the Montreal Screwjob. The WWF locker rooms were in chaos following Hart's exit. Wrestlers were angry at what they saw as a betrayal of one of the WWF's most respected wrestlers, some threatening to leave the company. Hart himself reportedly advised them to stay and fulfill their contractual obligations, rather than threaten their careers on his account. But McMahon had strained his relationship with many of his performers near to the breaking point. For more on this story, I highly recommend having a listen to the New Generation Project podcast. The whole run is well worth your time, as it's a great podcast. But in particular, have a listen to episodes 79, 80, and 81, which cover Survivor Series 1997 and the documentary Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows. They cover these events in exceptional detail. Yeah, just a note on that. So, Bret Hart... He's getting documented crew filming him because this is the end of his run in WWF. And obviously, they have no idea what's coming in Montreal. So it just happens he has people filming his daily life leading up to this big moment. So there's a second camera crew not working with McMahon backstage during all of this. Yeah, that captures a lot of the yeah. moments that are around it. It's, it's, kind of, it's an amazing like coincidence of fate. Yes. That there actually is footage. Yes. Hmm. But obviously, Vince McMahon would not all that footage out but someone else is shooting it, they have no control over that. Yeah. 
So, interesting times, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's less than less than a month, about a month from the show, right? Yeah, it was the uh, Survivor Series is in November. Right. So, yeah, this would have happened about a month before this. Yeah. Our seventh match is Larry Zabisco versus Eric Bischoff with Scott Hall for control of WCW Monday Nitro. The referee for this match is Brett Hitman Hart. So around the point of Starcade 96, they revealed that the real backer of the NWO was Eric Bischoff. And mind you how you explain him being powerbombed through the stage by people that apparently work for him, like Kevin Nash, I don't know. Deep cover. Okay. <laughs> yes. He was really committed to the bit, apparently. So once he comes openly out as the leader, he's throwing his all the power around. It kind of wavers between shows how much he can actually do, because he's able to override some matches, but then not others. And then he's control, but there's also a board, and there's Dylan speaks for them. It's really unclear like how nebulous the, the power structure is here exactly. And to be clear, he's the executive vice president of WCW. So he is an actual executive there. He's not just a, like a character, yeah. Yeah. Oh. But he's also that as a character. Behind the scenes, he saw what fun and tension they were getting and wanted to be part of it. So he made himself, his character, <laughs> who just been an announcer, suddenly the focal point of the NWO as much as he could. Yeah. That's basically, that's really why I did it. I'm sure he'd tell you otherwise in his podcast, but <laughs> we know why I did it. He was being really vocal and authoritative with his power. Elizabeth becomes sort of the de facto voice of the WCW locker room on Nitro. Not really sure why exactly, other than just he's a wrestler, but he is. So they set up that there's issues between him and Bischoff. Zabisco is attacked by the NWO, trying to help somebody, and Bischoff knocks him out, obviously with a lot of help, and then poses for a picture over him, and then he distributes the leaflets celebrating his victory over there. He's really laying into to Zabisco. Zabisco, being very high-tempered, really wants to fight Bischoff. Bischoff denies it, tries to put it off, tries to put it off. Finally, he agrees to do it if J.J. Dillon puts control of Money Nitro on the line, which he does. So this match is not just like a personal feud and a fight, it's for control of a show, which they set up in a really long, drawn-out way on the last night before this, where the NWO takes over the sec- basically the second half of Nitro, and they spend 20-odd minutes at least like changing out the ring curtains, pulling down the sign to bring new signs up, literally cutting the WSW metal like placard things they have, cutting them down, getting everything out for the last half of the show. Uh, just to show, like, it's a tease. Like, here's what NWO Monday Nitro would be like, because that's what they want. You know, there's there's good and bad points to to our parts of the show prep. I find you get to get away with only watching Buff Bagwell versus Lex Luger once. True. Where I have to watch it multiple times to do the show notes for it. Yes. I don't have to watch NWO Monday Nitro, <laughs> and true. you do. So <laughs> that is true. I mean, if you want to see in real time where they make all the camera guys take off the WCW shirts and put on WWO Nitro shirts, go ahead. (laughs) Real time, baby. That is an episode I will not be looking up anytime soon. I get the idea, but it's way too long. Montage. Yes, exactly. That's what it should have, yeah. Hopefully not to the theme. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hart is out first with a vague approximation of his WWF theme. Yeah. It's okay, but nowhere near as good. No. Bischoff is out next with his own theme. <laughs> no NWO theme. I think that just actually turned Bischoff into the biggest face on the show for me. <laughs> the backwards ball cap looks dumb, though. Yes. At least he chucks it to the crowd really fast. He's wearing kick pads, and Hall gives him some gloves to put on, too. Zabisco, appropriately enough, gets the nitro theme. And a nitro-sized load of pyro. <laughs> yeah. I think someone heard the theme start up and just thought it was the opening of nitro. Oh, oh hit, hit the button. <laughs> it's a good theory, actually. Yeah. Honestly. Zabisco wears a great sparkly black jacket with a big gold Z on the front and legend on the back. The announcers admit that they are blatantly rooting for Zabisco and hope that they get to go slap Bischoff. <laughs> Hart checks Zabisco and Bischoff to make sure that no one's hiding any foreign objects, and Bischoff gives him a gigantic smile as he does. The crowd gives a Larry chant for Zabisco, who looks genuinely touched by that. Bischoff wards Zabisco off with punches and kicks, and celebrates after tagging him with punches that really didn't do much. Mm-hmm. After more punches and kicks do nothing... Bischoff rolls out to get advice from movie buff Scott Hall, who proposes the crane kick from the Karate Kid. Slightly more topical than most movie references we got on Dubstep. <laughs> yeah. It's only like 13 years earlier. Back in, Zabisco lands strikes, and Bischoff tells Hart they were closed fist. They weren't. Hart warns Zabisco anyway. Zabisco goes for the legs and eats a big roundhouse kick to the head that knocks him down, but Bischoff wastes time celebrating. Zabisco lands punches in the corner and throws Bischoff to the mat and rubs his face on it. Hart breaks that up for hair pulling and breaks up a sleeper hold and head scissors hold for alleged choking. Zabisco uses a standing reverse figure four so that he can't be accused of choking and Bischoff makes the ropes. So Zabisco drops on his leg and Bischoff rolls out, limping. Zabisco rams Bischoff into the post and gets another lecture from Hart, then throws Bischoff into the steps for about a .2 Cena. Pretty weak, yeah. Not too much distance there. (laughs) Another lecture, and Tony theorizes that Hart might be NWO. Hart Hart stops a Zabisco... Hart stops a Zabisco punch in the (laughs) corner. Sorry, here it is. (laughs) Al Mime's a heart attack here. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. He said heart stops. I had to say it. I had to do it. Uh, Now I can only think of that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Hart stops a Zabisco punch in the corner, and Bischoff lands a roundhouse kick then limps around and lands weak punches and some pretty nice kicks. Sabisco guards and absorbs Bischoff's offense as the crowd chants, Larry! Larry! Bischoff tires out, and Zabisco confidently calls for more, but Bischoff has nothing left. Zabisco takes over with a suplex and a neckbreaker and props him in the corner. Zabisco punches Hall when he tries to interfere, but Hart drags Zabisco away, and Hall frees Bischoff and slips a metal object into his kick pad. Mm-hmm. When Zabisco comes back over, Bischoff kicks him, but the object goes flying before he even hits. <laughs> Dusty, bless him, tries to cover by saying it flew out from the impact, but it definitely flies out well before the blow even lands. You imagine a lawsuit of getting hit with a piece of metal, <laughs> being in the crowd and getting hit in the head. Uh, yeah, it's like it's more dangerous to the front row than, mm-hmm. to, the, than to Zabisco. Zabisco's out cold anyway, and Bischoff celebrates and talks to Hart, but Hart slugs Bischoff to knock him out. Hart gives a great casual shrug to an astonished Hall. (laughs) Hall gets in and does a weird little jig and charges, but Hart easily takes him down and puts the sharpshooter on him. 
Hall taps as Zabisco wakes up and chokes Bischoff with his own belt. Hart raises Zabisco's arm, declaring him the winner. It's not outright said, but I'd guess it's by disqualification for the kind of loaded kick, since Hart very clearly saw the entire thing. I think he dodges, actually. He, like, he, like leans back <laughs> a little bit. He watches, he, like, you see him tilt his head and, and watch the metal piece fly. <laughs> okay. Fly. Yeah. You know, he definitely sees the metal go by. He's like, he looks like he follows like, him. Huh? <laughs> yeah, he looks up faster for sure, yeah. Tony is elated and says the NWO can tear up any set they want, but they can't hide the fact that they're losers. Ouch. <laughs> this whole match, I'm sitting here, like, making stupid puns in my head about Bischoff cookies and Nabisco crackers. <laughs> like, you know, desperately trying to avoid calling them Nilla Wafer or something. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Thoughts on this match? It's an odd one. It's the weird kind of mix of comedy and serious wrestling. Because mm-hmm. they're definitely trying to play up how comedically overconfident Bischoff is with his kicks and strikes. But then abruptly he'll do an actual kick and knocks Larry down and it's like, oh, okay, which, 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 what is it? <laughs> I think they do a decent job on that point of splitting it somewhat where Bischoff's punches don't tend to do much. Sure. But Bischoff's kicks tend to be the things that, that uh, will actually knock Larry down or something. And they look better, too. The they look a look- lot better. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, could see, I can see that point of view. So last time we got Biscuit was what? First Battle Bowl, right? Yes, when he was tasked with making something watchable out of giant, uh, out of uh, Elegante. You were in there right the first time, but yeah. Yeah. Because it's the same guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So it's interesting. It's been a six-year show gap for them, I believe. And he won 97, yeah. It's not quite as hard of a task this time, making some interesting out of what he's given, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting that they put so much faith in him for this match with a non-wrestler, but also with these implied large stakes, too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some WCW guys in the back like, you know, I could have fought for control of the show. Yeah. Doug is probably back there moping, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I like... They they make a clear divide between what Bischoff can actually realistically do, which is occasionally hit a kick that sort of stuns you, and what Bisco would do, which is basically control when he's not being pushed away by Bret Hart. They tell a good story here. I will say, as much as I like the way the story's played out, I'm annoyed be <laughs> part of it because they're obsessed with insider lingo throughout it. They keep referring to like questioning whether Bret Hart is a tweener. Oh, like they kept saying I missed that. that part, yeah. They say it several times. Yeah. They keep speculating he's a tweener. I'm like, okay, most people don't know what the hell you mean. If you don't know wrestling lingo, you think, Bret Hart doesn't look like he's about 12. <laughs> he's in between something. Yes. Yeah. The idea is he's, he's not a face or a heel. He's in between. Yeah. yeah. And I know that, but I'm also watching this 22 years later, so I'm not sure it's really a fair comparison. And that's not like this is a one-off thing. They do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And WF does it as well. Vince McMahon talks about there's no face and heels anymore. That Shades of Grey promo from, yeah. I think, also 97, maybe 96. I believe so, yes. 97, I think. I think so, yeah. Obviously, the biggest thing for me is that the finish is both complicated and vague. Because <laughs> they're always upon outside interference, the foreign object, but then the referee not being a bad guy... Mm-hmm. And then awarding the match 
to Zabisco for some reason. Which they never state. They just say the winner of the match is Larry Zabisco. No, yeah. It's weird that he doesn't like go to the guy and say, yo, he went by blah, blah, blah. I do like that Bret Hart, he's being paid a lot of money to be here at this company, but he's also not super excited about the story. So he has fun by letting him do something. When he interacts with Scott Hall, he's clearly having fun with it. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. They definitely work really well. But then when he's supposed to be celebrating the victory with them, he stopped to tie his shoe. <laughs> Basically, was like celebrating the corner, and he's like, yay! And he's like, yeah, yeah. One Doesn't want a trip, you know. No, no, no. Yeah. But when they shake hands, he actually looks the other way. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of like that. I really love the little casual shrug that he gives to Hall, though. That is, that's actually one of my favorite moments of the night. Yeah. <laughs> that and the Goldberg smile. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh. He's, just, he's clearly disinterested in this whole overall story, but he, they give him a couple of things he, he finds amusing yeah. and enjoyable. So he's, he gets to have fun with that, but otherwise he doesn't really care. So maybe he is a tweener. Yeah. Just between their, story, their questionable storytelling. you got to be impartial as a, as a ref. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a very large difference in their fighting styles. I didn't really like the commentary during this where they were talking about like martial artists can only do. A. One admit, but the one wrestlers admit, can yeah. do everything, yeah. you know. It was funny to hear MMA mentioned, though. Yeah, yeah. That's like a very new thing at this point, actually, if you think about it. So That's true. Yeah. But, I mean, this whole thing, I'm like, okay, well, if this guy's a, a martial artist, I'm like, he has absolutely no conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what he's playing up. And I'm like, that it should be the other way around, if anything. But... I really d- like the story where, you know, they hastily put this metal thing in, in his uh, foot guard and he's going to kick him. And, you know, they do it real quick and like shoddily. Like, you see him like fumbling trying yes. to get it in there. He, so. put, yeah, he tries to put it underneath it first and then he realizes he has to put it in the top part of it. Yeah, because he's got to kick him with the top part of the foot. He's like, oh, crud. Because the, the strap's in the middle of the foot. So, you know, he can't really like put it there. Yeah. So he puts it in the top. So it, and then tries to put the top on it. It doesn't even land on his foot. Or mm-hmm. cover it. Yeah. <laughs> we Hearts just watching this play out. And I think that it's a really good uh, way of looking at it. He's like, look, man, I did my best not to disqualify. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, stop gloating. I think that they really wanted to have that turn at that point. So it was, it was I, like, I expect it to happen. And I was, it was a good lead up to it. And the fact that, like, Hart is as you said, or like disinterested or whatever. But I, I really do see it as kind of like, this could have gone a different direction, whatever, you know, at this point I have to do something or say something. And he's in a position to, you know, dole out what needs to be doled out. And uh, I don't know. I like the ending. Mm-hmm. It wasn't weird for some reason. The interesting thing to me about putting the metal plate in, other than that it goes completely wrong, is that it's a great indication of how confident they are that they bought Hart. They are not worried about hiding this from him. That's true. They're worried about hiding it from Zabisco, but they they don't care if Hart sees, because if Hart sees, he's not going to DQ us. What are you talking about? He's We've paid him $7.5 million. We've got a contract. Yeah. They're being so blatant about thinking that he's on their side that they give him the perfect excuse then when he's not on their side to be like... <laughs> You lose, <laughs> you know. I just wish they would have said. That. I just wish that they were more evident about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not my issue. I don't mind the idea of it. Just yeah, they don't. They don't say it. It's kind of disappointing. 
Well, they did a lot of f- good foreshadowing in this, I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they're like, they're looking for weapons, and they had him overly celebrate everything. Yes. <laughs> and get on your nerves. He comes off very smarmy, which is actually very good in this match. Although, picturing if he had actually bothered to check Scott Hall for weapons, because he would have pat him down. <laughs> and it had been really painful, because he would have pat the front, he's got a metal piece stuff in the front of his pants. <laughs> yeah. Like, saying there, no. This was all right. They did a good job playing with which side Hart was going to be on and making it clear that the only reason Zabisco didn't just annihilate Bischoff was that Hart kept interrupting his momentum to check his holds or break corner punches or things like that. So Bischoff doesn't come off looking strong even when he does get some sustained offense. Zabisco can clearly win. He's just getting adverse rulings from a very strict ref. Bischoff's kicks looked pretty nice, actually. His punches, not so much. Zabisco looked good overall. It runs long for what it is, I think, but good character work helps deal with the stalling, and aside from the metal object being much more dangerous for someone seated in the front row than for its attended target, Zabisco, I didn't really have much of a problem with this. It's more storyline than match, but it's a decent enough storyline. It didn't excite me, but it didn't annoy me. Now, are we accepting the idea that it feels situation is so much in control with Bret Hart on their side as referee that they don't need to bother calling in backup? I, I do in this case, I think. Okay, that's the question. I think that makes sense as an argument that okay. we don't need backup for this one, guys. The ref is never going to rule against us. And he doesn't really give any sign that he's going to do so mm-hmm. until he punches Bischoff, at which point it's too late. Right, right. No, just clarify. I'm not asking a question, but... Yeah, I don't have a problem with the lack of interference on this one, because I think they think they've got it in the bag. This is one they definitely need to explain if they don't interfere why they yes, do it. yeah. Because it's the highest stakes, potentially, on the show, really. And the tone of the match is totally different. Uh, mm-hmm. You have old-school wrestling where you don't, you don't have people grabbing their hair and rubbing it into the mat anymore yeah. in modern wrestling. I did, Actually, the, the part that bothered me in the whole match was at the very end, after he won, he was strangling the guy with the, you know, the rope. For some reason, that just seemed wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like you know, I was like, what, what are you doing? You're actually going to hurt him. That, that, but yeah. Then, well, Daniel Bryan did that in 2010, and he got fired for it. So. <laughs> yeah, that that was the only part that bothered me, but it was very much an, an exhibition of other alternate styles, like an old, old-timey old match where you had like a boxer versus some strong man. That's what I got from it. It was like a circus <laughs> thing or, or something along those lines. It's interesting to see Zabisco, like, like you were saying, Al, after so many years, he has you know, the 80s wrestling style. Yeah. A good 80s wrestling style, but a, but an 80s wrestling style. And it's interesting to see that contrasted to really the rest of this card. And I think he actually, he has some good spots. There are moves that in the modern era, or I guess that I'm referring to this as the modern era, it's 1990s. It's moves that in the 1990s are not big moves anymore for for you to do necessarily, but he pulls them off in such a way that they still kind of feel like big moves. Mm-hmm. So I, I I rather enjoyed watching him again, honestly, and um and I think Bischoff did his part quite well in this match. He has a a, a very good bit of character. Zabisco has a very good bit of character, and they have a a, a good storyline built around it. So it's not the most exciting match in the world, but it's not a bad way to spend mm-hmm. your time. On eighty three weeks, Eric Bischoff does talk about this match, him getting to the arena earlier than usual, and kind of just being really nervous about this match and just saying, I really didn't want to let anybody down in this because I was aware 
I'm not a wrestler yeah. and saying my goal going into this was just don't screw up, <laughs> you know, I can see that. Don't let Zabisco down. You know, I, I it's, it was really interesting to hear that. Cause it's like, honestly in the ring, he actually looked very comfortable. I thought, yeah, being confident and performing and everything, but I, I do understand. Yeah. Going up to that, you're, it's probably like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I could screw up one of these bumps I have to take and that could be it, you know? <laughs> So. Yeah, he's had about a year of being in the ring doing promos and stuff. So he's used to being on camera, but definitely, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a certain level when you're the performer, not just a guy delivering lines. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting, I think. I think I was, and I know this is a different type of wrestling, but I think I was more nervous for my wrestling matches than I was for, like, giving speeches. I think speeches edged out a little bit, but, like, mm-hmm. you know, I never felt that way when I was doing any other sport or anything else like that, mm-hmm. but... Wrestling is like, I could come out of this really hurt. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, or, or um, you know, I could really hurt someone else. <laughs> yeah, especially if it's something that you haven't... I'm sure even, like, when, when you were in your earliest ones, it was probably much worse in that regard than when you'd done matches way down the line. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm aware, like, he's taken a move or two in the past, but I don't think that he's done any matches before this point. I don't believe so, no. So... Who else? I'm after this, but not yeah. Yeah. Even well, maybe. actually, Bob, I would say my first matches were a little bit easier because I only knew so many moves. <laughs> like I had, I didn't have to choose. No, like, uh, I, no analysis paralysis going yeah, on. It's yeah. No, it's like I know how to throw an arm. I know how to you know do a head, head and arm and, and these three four moves. If I'm on the ground, I do this and then the other and then nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything else is just try to get out of whatever they're doing. At what point did you learn the diamond cutter so you could win every match? Um, never. Oh. See, that was your mistake. <laughs> no, I'd only have one match and then just not wrestle anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't pick people up or, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, since Sabisco won, the dreams of NWO Nitro are gone forever. Yes. People are very sad to hear this. They don't make too much mention of it. They get to mention one during the match. But there's an extra stipulation in the match that Sabisco gets to wrestle... Scott Hall, the next show. Oh, when, okay. yeah, I think they do mention it briefly. Yeah. Passing and passing seems like it's a bigger deal. So that leads, yeah, again to this is at least a better example of not just giving the match supposed to get the first time, but they get a follow up match where he wrestles Scott Hall. Uh, this time he's Dusty Roach in his corner. So sadly, not a commentary, but he will be on the next show. Okay. In some form. Our final match is Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus Sting for Hogan's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referees are Nick Patrick and Nick Patrick's sweet mustache. <laughs> You're separate listing in your um, chart for that? Yeah, I, I, have, I have not added the mustache to the chart. I probably should. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hogan, as a uh, trolling person in the has for the most part had a pretty strong stranglehold in the title, keeping A1 at bay through lots of nefarious means and attacks and so forth. So at this point, the hope seems to rest on Sting, who would occasionally interfere for WCW in some sort of mysterious ways, leaving weapon behind like he did at the previous Starcade, other times doing more overt stuff. But this is definitely the big thing they're promoting, the point where they build a TV special around it during a showing of a movie to promote TBS. Specifically, Assault on Devil's Island, starring Hulk Hogan. This is Sting's first match since, I want to say, Fall Brawl the year before. I, think okay. I, I believe that's it. 
Because it's the aftermath of that where he turns yes. back. Yeah, he's yeah he leaves after Fall Brawl, starts hanging out in the rafters, and yeah, I believe he does not wrestle a single match until now. Yeah. And I guess since they were in the early, at this point in the early internet era, they felt they couldn't have him like wrestle a house show or two because it would end up on a, on a news thing. Like, I saw Sting last night, you know, yeah. give it away. And, and over a year is really long for a scorpion. Yes. Although they can last a year without eating. Oh, wow. Yeah, they can, they can modify their, their body into like a hibernative state. They hunt by sitting still and lie in wait. That's, That's their skill. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they can eat a third of their weight in one feeding and then not have to eat for another year. Wow. Heck of a diet plan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going for it. Yeah. Yes, this thing is tapped into his dark side. By which I mean he read a bunch of James O'Barr comics and watched a movie and became crosting. Yes. Michael Buffer does the intros and says, The WCW again. <laughs> he calls this the most anticipated match in the history of pro wrestling. You know, it might actually be. That's, I don't think that's a super huge exaggeration, actually. Mm, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's at least not like immediately laughable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it does take consideration. Yeah. Definitely at this point. I mean, like, it's pretty hyped. Yeah. Hogan enters first, despite being champ. Fitting in this case, since there's so much anticipation for Sting. NWO theme count, five. Hogan plays air guitar on the spray-painted big gold belt the whole way to the ring. <laughs> he chats with Nick Patrick momentarily. It's important to check with the ref, you know. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the challenger. laser light show that shows images of Sting and Scorpions and such. Per Tony Schiavone on his podcast, What Happened When, the kid doing the voiceover for that uh, intro was Eric Bischoff's son, Garrett. Oh. oh. <laughs> Garrett finally made the podcast. Yeah, Garrett finally makes the podcast. <laughs> I guess that actually, but I didn't know for sure. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Just in case, because the music is kind of loud there, I'm not sure how it's going to come through. I'm going to go ahead and read the speech as well. Also because it's interesting. Yes. And that's those lines again. When a man's heart is filled with deceit, it burns up, dies, and a dark shadow falls over his soul. From the ashes of a once great man has risen a curse, a wrong that must be righted. 
We look to the skies for our vindicator, someone to strike fear into the black hearts of the same men who created him. The battle between good and evil has begun. Against an army of shadows comes a dark warrior, the prevailer of good, with a voice of silence and a mission of justice. This is Sting. I do have to say, I think it's a pretty cool intro. That speech doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense, but no. it's still a pretty cool intro. <laughs> I think they used the thesaurus too much. <laughs> the, a, a little bit. The prevailer of good, which I'm pretty sure is accurate on there, but the prevailer of good is a very strange line. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I know they were going with like a post-apocalyptic pseudo-cult <laughs> thing, so they couldn't use like normal speech. Yeah. But... I don't know. Like, I don't look to the skies for scorpions. <laughs> but you do look to the skies for scorpion hawks. Yes, that is true. See? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that. Well, we're always going to talk about that. Oh, okay. It's the brand, right? Yes. Sting walks out to massive cheers, coat hanging loosely off one of his shoulders, baseball bat in hand. I was really weird. Why is the coat hang off one side? Yes, I thought the same thing. Otherwise, really cool. Like, yeah. What? He just doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I think he's going for emo. and, But yeah, to me, that does not come off right. No. This, this entrance almost works. He poses on the stage to Pyro and slowly strolls down the ramp. And we get some really cool overlays of uh, Hogan in the ring that kind of is very cinematic. Oh, yeah, yeah. But in the same opening. In the opening credits, they'd use, like, a double-layer filter. Yeah, yeah, similar to the opening credits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just not quite right with the the coat hanging off is, like, the one thing that screws this up a little, where it just looks lazy instead of intimidating. It's like they showed him out in the last minute. Yeah, it's like, literally, pull that up, and this is a terrific entrance. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that actually messed, messed it up for me was, like, Hogan's moving around the whole time. Like, like if yeah. her face is always aligned when they did the flip, of the cameras true it would have been much better <laughs> i mean hogan could do different stuff but he's like in different parts of the shot when they're flipping he's not great at sharing attention a point that other people have made is that this entrance kind of strips out some of the mystique you know you have this big song and dance intro and then sting just kind of walks out do you agree with that I could see the logic in there. You could easily have him come out during all the laser light show and that. And then when lights come up, he's just there in front of That would be Hogan. cool. Or he's done, I know, the repelling thing a few times. So that, that they could have done, potentially. Yeah, John, what's your thought on it? No, I, I think it would have been better if he just appeared. Going back to the, the my idea with the flock, he could have just been on one of the turnbuckles at the end of that thing, you know, and then jumped yeah. down and posed, and the lights could have gone out again, and then you could hear Hogan yelling. <laughs> and then, then the you know, he's back up, and I don't know. They could have done a lot more with it. Yeah. I honestly, when they were doing the uh, flashing between the lights, you know, I know that they always have a spotlight or something that shows where he's uh, walking, but I thought they just messed up the lighting because they should be like, him appearing from the ring somehow. Yeah, it, it just feels like there should be something bigger to this entrance. I, I don't think that it totally strips out mm. the the intimidation factor, but between he's just walking and the coat hanging off one shoulder, it, it kind of deadens it a little. I could see splitting the difference in having the dark lighting have the laser show as inconsistent as it was. And then have the narration happening with the kid voice and him walking out while that's going on. I think they might not have 
done that simply because the moment Sting steps out on the stage, you're going to have massive cheers and you won't hear a thing. Mm. <laughs> There's definitely better ways they could have done an entrance, I, I think, on, on this anyway. I, I don't remember the, the coat being over the shoulder or anything like that, honestly. Was that the same hand that had the, the bat? The same that has the ball bat, yeah. Well, maybe that's just to draw attention to it. Maybe. I remember it, carrying the bat. Just down, like a little off his shoulder on the yeah. like, side. Dra- he looked like he was like dragging or just letting it sway while he's walking. So mm-hmm. maybe that's why. Bob. Maybe. I think he's just doing sexy pose with the coat. <laughs> <laughs> sexy emo sting. <laughs> Is that better than crow sting? We can call him sexy emo sting. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Should I get to this thing now? Yeah. Okay. Stare down as Patrick talks to both. Sting takes off his coat, revealing basically a superhero outfit with a Scorpion logo on the chest. Hogan shoves him and throws his bandana, so Sting slaps him. Hogan pushes Sting into the corner and tries a cheap shot, but Sting blocks and slugs Hogan hard, sending him stumbling across the ring to massive cheers with a Hogan sucks chant. Hogan offers a test of strength, but kick Sting, taking control with punches and a clothesline that rock Sting, but get no facial reaction from him. Hogan keeps up the offense, including a back rake, despite Sting wearing a shirt. But Sting dodges three elbow drops in a row and hits a drop kick to send Hogan rolling out to the floor. Back in, another exchange ends in two more Sting drop kicks to send Hogan out over the ropes. Back in again, and Sting works a headlock for a bit. Hogan gets a clothesline and suplex, but Sting no-sells and does a DX-style crotch chop as Hogan backs away in fear. Hogan pokes Sting's eyes and throws him through the ropes, slamming him face-first on the timekeeper's table and hitting him with his own bat. DQ? Nah. Patrick does warn Hogan about using the post as Hogan continues beating Sting up outside. Sting manages to send Hogan to the barricade, but Hogan dodges a stinger splash and Sting eats barricade. Precisely two guys chant for Hogan. <laughs> you sure that wasn't like Brutus and someone else yes. in disguise? Yes, sadly, I'm sure. Neither of them was using a megaphone, so I know it wasn't Jimmy Hart. I mean, take off the shine outfit, you could probably blend in pretty well. <laughs> Hogan drops Sting on the barricade crotch first for a punch, then throws him in the ring. Hogan builds to the big boot and leg drop for the one, two, three. But wait! We see Bret Hart has come out and stopped the timekeeper from ringing the bell. Patrick and Hogan come out, and Patrick orders the timekeeper to ring the bell, but Hart grabs a mic and says, it's not going to happen again. Hart says it was a fast count, as Patrick disagrees. It did seem quicker to me than Patrick's usual quite slow count, but nowhere near a true fast count. Hart punches Patrick, and Patrick really dramatically falls with his arms like over his head. (laughs) Oh, great. Best part of the match for me. Hart drags Hogan to the ring and orders the match restarted. Hogan begs for mercy as Sting beats him up and lands a stinger splash so energetic it nearly sends Sting over the ropes. (laughs) Yes. Bagwell and Norton hit the ring, but Sting punches both down, hits another stinger splash, and puts on the scorpion deathlock. Hogan tries to fight it, but finally nods his submission, and Hart calls for the bell, awarding Sting the win and the title. There's some things behind the scenes that we're going to want to discuss, but before that, let's chat about the match itself, just as it appears on the show. I'd like to hear your thoughts first, John. Ooh, two matches <laughs> in one. Um, I 
was very surprised at each time uh, Patrick was putting the hand down. He, he tightened the his hold, and like I, when I hit three, I was like, "Oh, okay, that's good." Uh, <laughs> you know, like, like all this build up, and I'm like, "This is what I was expecting." But you know what? All right. Mm-hmm. But as the announcer starts saying it, Hart's right there just to grab the mic. I think with the crowd being split, NWO and WCW. I think they wanted to give everyone uh, a narrative that mm-hmm. we everyone got to win. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We're talking about how Sting should have maybe just appeared in the ring when we have Bret Hart, who apparently just appeared at ringside. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is weird thinking about that. How fast did he have to sprint out there if he wasn't there? Or was he just sitting there? I, I missed what actually happened with him after the Farther than we left. Yeah. I don't think he was there the whole time. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was literally right there. He didn't even, like, he cut him off mid-sentence. Mm-hmm. I was honestly okay with the first match. Yeah. There was a lot of good performance by both sides. And the funny thing was, you know, it made it sound like, you know, there was an error and they were trying to correct for it. Just like when you're in soccer or something and you get a bad call mm-hmm. and then they go out. But I wanted to talk about uh, the fairness of, of Nick Patrick I know that he doesn't disqualify things. <laughs> yes. yes. He doesn't. But and, uh, Yeah, I'm agreeing with you, yeah. But, you know, I, I thought this was a no DQ match, so I was fine with that, because, you know, the main event, you got to let it keep on going. I know it's not, yeah. but, <laughs> like, when, when nothing was called, I was like, that's fine. But, to his credit, he seemed to be ragging on Hogan the whole time, even if it was, you know, whatever. Like, he, does kinda, he does kind of play it as a straight ref, yeah. Hey, you stop that. And it is certainly one of the slower counts that I've seen from him. From from Patrick? Yes. Oh, really? I, I mean, it was not it by no means sl- uh, slow, okay? But, like, I also come from the WWF era when, with Stone Cold Steve Austin, like, counting him out, one, two, three. You know? Yes. <laughs> so, comparing those two... I honestly thought that yes, he was the, he was down, he was counting right away, but I would consider it a legitimate pin, mm-hmm. even though we had that interrupt us. <laughs> yeah, it it looks like a pretty regular count, right? Mm-hmm. The only difference I noted between it and Patrick's normal count is Patrick normally does this little, and I'm doing something visual now, even though we're an audio yeah, show, but fine. he does this little, like, he'll hit the mat, and then he'll, like, rotate his hand, and then bring it back up and do another one to get a, a kind of even pacing to it normally, and he didn't do that this time. But that's the only difference, really, between it and a normal Nick Patrick count. So that's in, that's interesting. So your take on it is you thought that was a legit count, when they did it, and mm-hmm. I think it was counter to whatever narrative they were actually going for, and Brett, somehow, even though he was already there, mm-hmm. <laughs> was able to restart the match when there was no real, I mean, other than the other disqualifying things that had happened, there was nothing to really give rise to that. And it seemed yeah. like Brett was kind of saving the show and, and at the same time trying to show that hey i'm a, I'm a registered ref you know and, and refs argue mm-hmm. all the time so screw this there's already that whole uh part about we tried to make this as fair as possible with mm-hmm. this drawing and everything so you know i think that some of this was planned but the count itself just analyzing that and none of the other stuff behind looked like that should have been the end of the match that that was interesting to me though so so you would have been okay with that 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted Sting to win, but, you know, I thought that that could easily play into something else. You can go down a real dark path. Like, like okay. why was he Why was he out of the ring for so long? He's got to go to the roof now. <laughs> roof instead of the rafters. I, 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 just, I just know that it, they could work whatever narrative they wanted to. Mm-hmm. You could argue that NWO rigged it, and everyone's going to say, well, it was a fast count, and still make Sting out to be the hero, and still appease the fans. And then you have Bret Hart, which is the newcomer, trying to set what his role will be in in the uh, company, saying, you know what, I gained a lot of points in that last match. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I I think that this would go a different way. Let's start it again. And Hogan does a really got, good job of being like, no, no, I don't want to do that. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy with my win. Mm-hmm. But no, no, overall, I do think it was planned. I just don't know if if that was the point where they were supposed to have the three. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely think that, you know, if, if that wasn't the point where he was supposed to fall, he was supposed to kick out and mm-hmm. he didn't. So that is supposed to happen, except it's supposed to be a fast count. Yeah. So sting is supposed to be fast counted down. Then that explains why Bret Hart comes out and is like, wait, that's a total injustice. Cause it would be where the way that you actually saw it, like you justly pointed out, is that looks legit. It looks like Sting just lost. Maybe like 10 to 15% speed extra, yeah. you know, like faster, not like trying to throw it. Yeah. that That's why I wanted you to give your opinion first mm. on it is because Al and I have heard about this match for years. I really wanted to hear the, just from looking at this show, what does it feel like kind of thing. And that's really fascinating. It seeming like a legit count to you and just being like, why, wait, why are they? It was the most legit match? thing in the part of the match at that point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But no, like while he had him on his back and then rolled him up onto his shoulders and was tightening that grip, it looked like with that, it, mm-hmm. not any way leisurely <laughs> mm-hmm. with that normal or semi-normal count speed that there was no way he could kick out. Mm-hmm. Even if it was a little bit slower. Well, I was thinking, there's no sign of a kickout like about to happen. It's not like it's three and just afterwards his he kicks out. He's just down and out, and then they immediately sh- jump over to Bret Hart there. Yeah. It's funny they talk about this like a most anticipated match ever, and like match on like anything other. All these sort of uh, big glowing things they say about this. It actually did remind me of a match I've seen before on the show. That is the opening match directly in 94 with Vader versus Axel Dem Duggan. <laughs> Just curve the inverse of that because in this case, the heel is dominating so much when clearly the face whose story is only I can stop the NWO, you're the face of this, I could take you out. It feels like he needs a lot of help to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. The match is completely booked backwards, just like that one is. Things should be dominating. And then Hogan does an eye poke or something, and that's how he gets any offense. You can even have the outside thing where Sting decides to jump at the guardrail from 20 feet away for some reason. Best outcome is you hit him the move on there and you fall into the crowd. It's not going to end well for you, either way. <laughs> I've heard about this match before having really an even booking as far as being super pro Hogan controlling the match. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe we're exaggerating. A lot of people really don't like this match. So maybe they're exaggerating. It's like, oh, he controls a little bit, but it feels like too much because it's Hogan and blah, blah, blah. No, he definitely controls too much mm-hmm. for me. 
And it's inconsistent with how Sting like comes back. So the punches they definitely knock him down. Maybe they don't really super hurt him because he doesn't make like an expression like he's hurt, but it definitely takes a punch and goes down to one knee, like mm-hmm. instantly. Like the first punch he gets. But then he gets suplex and pops back up like nothing. So he can't be hurt. Except for that time he could be hurt. <laughs> and then he's injured on the outside, probably from the singer splashing miss and then from Hogan hitting him. Hogan rolls in the ring and dances around him for like feels like twenty minutes before he does the leg drop after the big boot. <laughs> Sting doesn't move at all, like he's actually dead. And then he's getting pinned and pulled in a tighter pin with no hint of him kicking out at all. Like it's not like we're kicking out of what would be four in a fast count. He's just actually knocked out completely. <laughs> But then, with 30, 40 seconds, maybe a minute tops recovery time, he's instantly up, back at full strength, possibly more strength than before, and can immediately dominate him and throw individual people out, and then lock him in a hold they never even tried to do in the match. Mm-hmm. It's undercompensating Sting for the most part of the match, and then overcompensating to rush to an ending. Mm-hmm. It's very confusingly booked purely from a spectral standpoint. You know, he's strong, but he can't keep it up because Hogan finds a way to cheat until the end when nothing can stop him. Mm-hmm. The ending feels abrupt, even if they joked about it. It takes forever to actually do the leg drop afterwards because it doesn't feel like it's building up to a finish. Mm-hmm. It just he rolls in the ring and then it's boot. You're like, wait, oh, he's going to move or something. And then they go another five minutes. And he doesn't, yeah. <laughs> and he just lays there, yeah. It's like he's like tranked on the floor and can't move, yeah. It's very odd to me. Yeah, for me, there is far, far too little sting in this match. In a way, it's kind of a generic babyface with heart versus strong heel that isn't Vader kind of match. Mm -hmm. But normally those at least start with a lot of fire from the face, and Sting gets barely any offense at the start, or at any other time in the match for that matter. I'm not sure if I've conveyed that well in my recap. I'm trying to summarize, and so you lose a lot. But there's not really a sustained period of Sting offense for the most part. Yeah. He gets some shots in the corner, a few drop kicks, but until the very end, he never really feels like he gets to have control. Mm-hmm. It feels stranger and stranger as the match goes on, and you just don't really get to see Sting do much of his stuff. Still, if it weren't for the weird false finish, this wouldn't be notably disappointing. You know, if we didn't have that, you could totally forget the rest of the match once they hit the point where Sting beats up Hogan and the NWO and wins. No one would care what came before that. At True. That case. No, I agree with that, yeah. With the confusing mess of the false finish, though, this falls down into infuriating territory. On perhaps their biggest night ever, WCW has utterly failed to deliver a satisfying ending to the story that they've been building for a year and a half. Sting looks like he failed. The NWO has run over WCW time and again, beating their best guys one way or another, and now WCW's great champion has returned. And he would have lost too, if it weren't for Bret Hart, just kind of randomly deciding to stop the timekeeper. That's what this looks like. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible ending to an epic storyline, and it does make me angry, actually. If I didn't state it, I I felt like it was an error. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not what's intended. The fact that everyone is out there immediately after the second part. <laughs> you know, everyone's like at the ringside already. So they, they had yeah. expected Sting to win, you know, like it only confirmed it at that point. But the whole point from the third count 
to everything else was just confusing to me. <laughs> you know, until Hogan's back, and I'm like, okay, I get to watch a little bit more. That's fine. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't know what kind of angle they were choosing because, like, Sting's yeah. still dressed in black and white. He could be part of the end. Uh, <laughs> it could be a toll. Like, you know, that would be a yeah, crazy No, twist. I get you. I get you. You're thinking, what if this thing is Sting comes out, like, lays down for Hogan almost? Yeah. yeah. Like, there is no hope. Holy crap, that's dark. <laughs> John, they're reading his search a lot. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what I was thinking. Like, oh, man, yeah. Sting's really part of this, too. And at... Now, who's going to say it? Is Bret, is Bret Hart going to come and take I can, Yeah, that's that's an interesting... Okay, I'll give you that. Well, you read the thing. Isn't there a line about like taking the garb of shadows and something in that whole spiel? Against an army of shadows comes a dark warrior. Let, let's be clear. I could not understand all that. Yes. <laughs> with, with the audio. Yes. But, you know, I did watch it a few times just to watch the whole lightning bolt through the eye thing. Look awesome. <laughs> but... I watched this three times just to see how I felt each time. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with both outcomes just because I don't have that background. That's what it comes down to. Like, you know, you were talking about how NWO is a big thing. Well, I have no reference. Right. Yeah. Cause we've been watching this just a Starcade, Starcade run. So you really don't get the show after show after show after show after show kind of build. I, I really wondered honestly going into this, if that would, if that would change a reaction. And it does. Yeah. I'm looking at it as a story element. It could be a cliffhanger, a twist, mm. or, or a, a, a something to drive a new era. And yeah. Again, I didn't give a lot of credibility or like thought to Sting becoming part of NWO, but I, I did think about it at, mm-hmm. for, for a brief brief moment. Like, no, that was too easy. <laughs> I mean, there's no way yeah. they're, du- no they're dumb enough to put the biggest face to fight the NWO in an NWO faction. <laughs> they're not stupid enough to do that. And then I'm like, it's WCW. Yes, true. <laughs> I, 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 I'm conflicted. <laughs> I, I know. It's, I mean, it is. It's a hard match to think about with all the weird stuff that goes on. Sting wins, but I still have like a slightly better taste, you know, just because it doesn't feel quite genuine. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned, the false finish is supposed to be a fast count. There's been a lot of talk about how this came to happen. And I want to bring out some comments from some of the major players. We got a statement from probably the best authority on the count when Ref Nick Patrick appeared on the July 2nd, 2017 episode of ring announcer David Penzer's Sitting Ringside podcast. Here's what Patrick said. What happened is the two people, Sting and Hulk, were... They were the two franchise guys. And the two franchise guys were butting heads at this point in time over what was going to happen. And one guy came up to me and told me to fast count it, because I was already doing, you know, to get some heat so it would give him an out. And the other guy says, don't fast count it, just keep it nice and slow. And so the person that was in charge didn't, evidently didn't want to make the call, didn't want to pick a side, and made themselves scarce all night long to where I could not find them to ask them, hey, what do you want me to do? Patrick says he kept looking for someone to ask up until it was time for the match. He goes on to describe what he settled on. So, I just did it differently than I normally do. I didn't do my 1-2-3 NWO heel ref count, but I didn't do the my normal 1-2-3 one second count in between, you know, back in the old days. Basically, he split it down the middle. Mm-hmm. 
On the December 9th, 2018 episode of his own podcast, 83 Weeks, then WCW Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff says of Sting, He had to go over strong. We had to end the story exactly the way the audience wanted it to end. On the highest note possible. That was the finish going in. How we were going to get there on a step-by-step basis, I can't tell you because I wasn't involved. Bischoff says, and he is careful to clarify that this was his perception, not definite knowledge of Sting's mental state, that he felt like Sting, quote, never believed it was really going to happen. He believed he was going to get screwed out of an opportunity, and he quit six months before this event. He quit caring. He quit taking care of himself. He quit preparing. He showed up with no energy, no anticipation, with no enthusiasm. It was just like, okay, you guys are going to f*** me, so let's get it over with. That was the vibe I got. I don't think he really felt that way, but that was the vibe he was giving off. And as a result of that, we probably went through five or six different alternatives and options, maybe more, because we knew we were in trouble. Bischoff says they took a break at their meeting, and after Sting left the room, Bischoff and Hogan looked at each other, and Hogan said, Brother, he's not ready. He's not into this. And I agreed with him. Co-host Conrad Thompson asks about how the change was communicated to Nick Patrick and Bret Hart. Bischoff says, I was involved in the discussion in terms of, okay, we've got to change the finish. We've got to come up with something different than what we came up with because what we came up with isn't going to really work. Then it went to the Kevin Sullivans and Terry, that'd be Hogan, himself, and Steve, that'd be Sting, and everybody involved. And I'm sure that Terry Taylor probably chimed in to a degree as he would and should have. I didn't get involved in the finish or the details of it. Conrad asked if Bischoff told Patrick to do a fast count. Bischoff says he would have conveyed what he was aware of to Nick Patrick if Patrick came up to him and asked him, but also says, I would have made sure that the referee was in the room while the finish was being laid out. It's not like on the way out to the ring, the talent would get together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. The referees were as engaged, or should have been as engaged, in laying out the finish of a match as the two principals in the ring. That's the way it's supposed to be. Bischoff, however, admits that WCW had poor communication protocols and poor organization that caused a lot of confusion. So, those are some stories of how we got to this point, and I highly encourage you to have a listen to the actual episodes that I've noted for more of the story. The quotes I've read are a very, very small part of what's discussed. In particular, Conrad presses Bischoff quite heavily on his story. It's an involved, detailed, and often heated conversation. So thoughts on all that. From the way it's presented, it feels like Bischoff is trying to both say he's in control of everything, company-wise, but then if you have an issue with how something happens, he goes, oh, I I was in charge, let them do it. (laughs) That's how it feels. Yeah, and I I will say, it's a much longer discussion on his. No, yeah. So I picked quotes that I thought got at precisely the events that led up to this point. Mm Mm-hmm. He had a match that night, so... He did have a match that night, too. <laughs> so. That is true. I, I'm forgetting the exact quote, but he has a, has another quote somewhere in there that as long as you get to the ultimate ending that you that I wanted, I'm not really fussed about how you get there, basically. Hmm. He's not going to micromanage. It. Yeah. Which... You should. Yeah, basically, for this, yeah. <laughs> for this, you should. Yeah. I think he was trying to save face at the same time, not assign blame. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, is a smart thing to do, whether yeah. he, or a cowardly thing to do. But in this <laughs> case, no, no, I mean, like, no, yeah, genuinely, no. like, it, it's it's better to point at the actions. Like, 
we, we messed up. And, yeah. and I felt that way. Instead of saying, I did this, or this one person did this, he's like, well, the ref should be here, Terry Taylor should be here, things should be here. It's like he's, let, he's putting many people out there to try to disperse all of it, it feels like. Mm-hmm. But there's no ownership. It's Yes, yeah, exactly. This is what happened. And I think that's great in court of law. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> yeah, but true. Not, not in entertainment. <laughs> like, there's got to be some sort of... You know, the whole point of, of the horsemen and, and all these other factions and everything is someone's going to pay. And, and and he denies he denies all the fans that at the corporate level. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, too, because you don't have all of the quotes. There's a lot more to this. But he is at some point asked about the Nick Patrick thing to some degree, what Nick Patrick's quote about not being visible, not being available. Yeah. He basically says that couldn't happen, but then also kind of says it could. Yeah, he he basically says... Is not that he wasn't available, but that he would have told Patrick, go check. Personally, I think we can trust Nick Patrick's explanation. I don't think he has any reason to lie about it at this point. Right. I could see them from like, a, not necessarily a job preservation standpoint, but like mm-hmm. he was conflicted. He's got conflicted information. He's going to try to split the difference as best he can to still yeah. make it plausible that, you know, oh, he did change everything up en- enough mm-hmm. that that they could still call question to what he did. Yeah, Patrick afterwards says that he honestly thought for sure that someone was going to come and tell him you're fired. Mm-hmm. Either or. But that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm in agreement with you, on, with you on that, John. He's He's got conflicting information. He can't find out what the boss is willing to support him on. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's fairly obvious what the correct finish of the match is. It's the fast count, because otherwise none of the rest of the plan really makes any sense. Yeah. But you think Terry might be like, hey. You know, he's got conflicting information. He can't get clear word from the boss. Yes, I'm going to support you if you do the fast count, even though one of the other competitors, not naming names, is uh, telling you don't do the fast count. Then what do you do in that in that position? That could even be Sting at this point because they never just specify it. So it's like, I just want to lose. <laughs> like, screw this. You're going to screw me over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> screw me over. It's pretty clear it's Hogan. I know that. I know. I, I know. But, but yeah, I, I think that is a good point. It's like, what do you do in that situation? He's doing what he can to try to preserve his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's trying to kind of do both. And it comes off very poorly, but. Yeah. Well, let's be realistic. If this plays out like it should. This whole story arc, the ending has to be, in some degree, Sting vanquishes Hogan. Hogan is no longer the big guy who gets to be main event and be the lead, whether it's a closing promo or whatnot. He's not the champion anymore. He's not the main focus. Now Sting is taking his spot. If that plays out, he loses a lot of power, real or assumed. Mm-hmm. In this situation, screen time. So sure. suddenly, situation just happens to play in his favor, makes it muddy, and it and doesn't come out at the end of the interview. Is broken up because their leader is vanquished, and there's no unity anymore. Now they can draw it out for longer, mm-hmm. and they can do more more long winded promos and brag about winning and all that. Yeah, well, and they could do a role reversal. Hogan's bested now. He's now he's against the NWO, and Sting takes his rightful place. See? There you go. Yeah, could do that, but yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the Hogan mindset. There's much like, oh sure, yeah. But he's like, everything I have is built around me being the head of the NWO. Take that away. What do I have left? Hollywood. (laughs) Yep. I have a couple more comments I want to read. This time from announcer Tony Schiavone, 
on the December 28th, 2017 episode of his podcast, What Happened When. Regarding Sting and the change plan, Tony says, Regardless of what shape you thought he was in, here we are, and we've built it up to this. Don't change your mind. Make it work. Asked about the finish, Tony says, In hindsight, the finish should have been Sting going over clean. That's what it should have been. No Bret Hart, no heel referee making a fast count. Randy Anderson being the referee, calling it down the middle. Sting goes over one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm with Tony on this one. We could talk about the specifics of the false finish all day, I'm sure, and how it got screwed up, but my problem starts before that. Even if we accepted Bischoff's comments on Sting's preparation, Sting is wearing an outfit that nearly entirely covers him. Who can even tell his build? It's not like the guy showed up 400 pounds overweight, he's still generally in shape. If he's in good enough condition for you to have the match, and good enough condition to win the match, then he's in good enough condition to win the match clean. WCW has been building for a year and a half to Sting winning the title from Hogan here. Just let it happen. It's fine to still have Hogan look strong too. No epic confrontation results in an easy win for the hero. But the story is the story is the story, and a clear and strong win for Sting is the only acceptable conclusion to this story. If you feel like he isn't ready to be champion, you can figure out how to take the belt off him from there. But, you know, if you feel like the guy's downhearted and not motivated, a pretty good way to motivate someone is to make a really strong showing of support and belief in them. So that in and of itself might have changed things. We can never know, and I recognize that there can be other views on this. Bischoff clearly disagrees. But for me, it wouldn't have done any damage to WCW to just let Sting win clean. In any case, it's just a lame ending to a pretty amazing build. A sad waste of potential that undermined what could have been WCW's best ever Mm storyline. If somehow this was alternate, you know, alternate reality where it's not Hogan, where say it's Savage, for instance, and it's, you know, Hollywood Savage or whatever you call him, (laughs) and you get to the same point, everything else happening, other just you swap Hogan and Savage out. I feel like, given Hogan's reputation and history, Savage put in the same spot. None of this would have happened. Hmm. Obviously, it's a purely hypothetical thing. It's not provable. Hogan, I feel, is the X factor in this. Okay. For one reason or another, whether it's, whether I'm accurate or not, whether it's just my bias against him. But I just feel like anyone else's situation, the same point, it's not going to happen this way. I feel like you still might get to the point where Bischoff is like, hey, let, we need to do the fast count. Mm-hmm. I still don't get that decision, but that, from his own testimony, does actually feel like bischoff's decision yeah i mean obviously i feel like you don't get hey don't do the fast count if it's not hogan right which is where there's a really huge problem but i think the thing that even gives it the opportunity to go wrong i think really does feel like it's bischoff saying hey we can't do a clean finish because reasons yeah well because nwo (laughs) I mean that, like, they've been meddlesome. They don't always help each other, but they've been meddlesome meddlesome at every point and stage during this thing. So having it, there's a lot of NWO fans there, too, and they're like, well, if they're not at least attempting to do things (laughs) in their favor, maybe that's not good either. It's not a great explanation. (laughs) I just think you could have done it. You could have had the NWO interfere like Mm -hmm. they actually do after the count, 
where you know Bagwell and Norton run down and get the crap kicked out of them by Sting. Just have have a larger version of that. Maybe have some of the WCW guys join in from the crowd. Something like that. I don't want. We're getting. I'm going into fantasy booking too much, but it just feels like there's definite ways that you could get to this goal way better and have a really solid, cool ending. And this is not that. Mm-hmm. They cheapen it. It wasn't as cheapened until you, we went through all this. For me, <laughs> to be honest. That's why I wanted to get your opinion beforehand, because I was really curious like how this changes. The count, I, I can, just felt like someone messed up. You know, and and for whatever the intent or final outcome was, you know, I was like, okay, what are they going to do with this? Luger leads the collected WCW wrestlers to celebrate with Sting, giving his buddy a big hug to welcome him back and carrying him around. Giant lifts Sting up as Sting holds the belt high and the ring fills with WCW wrestlers. Hilariously, Rey Mysterio sits on Hugh Morris's shoulders. Yeah. (laughs) Casual La Parca makes an appearance. We get a great overhead shot of the ring, just packed absolutely full of wrestlers, and the crowd is just super loud cheering. So yes, for the crowd present in the arena, this did still work. Hacksaw Jim Duggan sits on a turnbuckle to wave the U.S. flag around. Sting turns to the camera and bizarrely shouts something about a mamacita. I'm not sure what he was going with there, but weird choice for your first words after the title win, Sting. And I think first words in like a year. (laughs) Just about, yeah. Yeah. DDP comes in to give Sting a hug. Some dude in the background has massively outdone Saturn's stupid haircut by literally having a tiny little thin ring of hair shaved on his head. I about died laughing when I saw that. I have no idea who that guy is. Clearly inspired Tyson Kidd, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, true. I was just going to highlight the two contrasting looks just for effect. First off, you have Haxon and Duggan, as you mentioned, sitting on the turnbuckle wearing the flag, Wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. Full tuxedo. It's yeah. bizarre. It reminds me weirdly there's that one Ed Wood film where the police chief, the whole movie is wearing a tuxedo, and apparently it's because he's going to go to an opera. Yes. And he's calling in for the crime. Hacksaw's going to La Traviata. There you go. <laughs> Tonight's secret word is tuxedo. Yes, there you go. In contrast, my boy La Parca, he's wearing, the, I think, the greatest ensemble in history of all time. <laughs> I have, I have to highlight it, because just saying casual parka doesn't do it justice. Yes. So he's wearing his mask with the built-in hood. He's wearing a Tommy Hilfiger shirt, the red, white, and green striped one, <laughs> with Tommy Hilfiger's sign on it, which I think was pretty common on those, I believe. Yes, yeah. Nice leather fanny pack right below that, and then oh, I like to think it was dad jeans. <laughs> nice, loose, comfort-fitting blue jeans. Oh my gosh. He is he is wise enough to be on the outside of the ring for the wide hard camera shot. So you see him walking along, you can see him in, in the all air. his glory. In all his glory. <laughs> he clearly follows Sting, knowing Sting's going to the corner. So when Sting is in the corner, like talking to the camera in that bit you're talking about, right on his right, like the angel on his one shoulder, is Laparka, just there, knowing where the camera is, like, I'm here too. Nice. He even makes sure to as they're walking away, we raise Sting's arm. I'm sure we confused the hell out of Sting. He's like, thanks? <laughs> He's milking the screen time. He knows what to do. The NWO can bite us, Tony says, and Starcade 97 is done. <laughs> WCW is very, very happy on the following 
Nitro. And when it's one, we get the return of Bobby Heenan, who claims his previous appearance on Nitro, offering to work for the NBO doing commentary, was him being heroic, being the only one that would come up and support everybody. He just rejoins the commentary team, much to Tony's befuddlement. It's a great segment. But stuff happens that should have happened on this show. Like, as I mentioned, the Cruiserweight title change happens. There's also Disco drops the TV title on Nitro, which is weird. And who Booker T, both of them were sitting in the audience, apparently not worthy of a match on the <laughs> show. Uh, the big story is that Hogan and Duo are disputing the finish because of the alleged fast count and the match being restarted. So, Diddy Dillon tells us that Ding has agreed to a title rematch the very next night. He's going to put it all in line again. He wants to be a fighting champion, no questions about it. Wants to be clear that it that is yeah, legit. Yeah, absolutely. No, no shades of gray. With about 10 minutes left in the show, everyone starts coming out for the title match. Tony assures us that if this match goes long, we're going to stick with it, and we're going to see how this ends. <laughs> So, Tony is telling us that we're running out of time, and I guess now we can't stick with the show. So, the closing shot of that Nitro is Sting diving into the corner with Stinger Splash, Hogan appearing to pull the referee, who is not Nick Patrick, by the way, in the way, and then show just stops. <laughs> so, uh. in 1998 time, you got to wait a week, because Thunder hadn't started yet. For the following Nitro, where Diddy Dillon explains to us that he can't show us the footage of what happened afterwards because it's being held up by the lawyers. I have no idea how that works. But he tells us 100% that the match didn't end properly, that NBO people ran in and WSW people ran in, and it was a no contest. So the whole let's resolve everything on Nitro thing does not resolve anything. They want a big event to promote the very first Thunder, their new show they're essentially forced to make by TBS, which offends a lot of the people that were happy with their limit house shows, limit TV times. Now they're being paid, in their mind, we paid the exact same amount of money and working twice as much. Mm-hmm. It's not wrong with the itch when we look at it. So apparently there's just too much controversy. So J.D. Dillon calls Sting and Hogan to the ring. And in the main event of the first Thunder, they announced the title being vacated. And we are going to get a rematch between the two to finally settle it for real, real at Super Bowl. Which is not the next pay-per-view. No, sold out yeah. the next pay-per-view. Oh, so yeah. We're just skipping past that. It just gets worse. Yes, yes it does. So don't worry, in February you'll get an answer to the, the story that should have ended in December. Overall thoughts on Starcade 1997. Okay, so as we talked about, it's a show that should be huge and epic and be the be-all, end-all to all these stories, lingering and otherwise. It should be the culmination of everything. Unfortunately, due to a number of circumstances that maybe they can't control, some they can, it's basically a non-starter for so many, and non-ending for so many of these matches. Mm-hmm. We either get matches that are completely nullified the next night, whether it's they have the rematch and the guy loses, what's the point, or we have the title chains the next night, not on the show for some reason, or matches that don't happen at all for, again, some good, some less good reasons. So we don't get a giant Nash match we're promised. We don't really get the raven Bebo match we were promised. We don't get the six-man tag match we were promised, at least in the form we were promised it. And then you get to the two final matches where they have the highest stakes, 
and the least clear endings. Yeah. Like you were saying before, this could be a knockout punch, as it is, it's more like you try to throw a knockout punch, but sort of question yourself as you're going for it, and thus you missed and fell over. (laughs) Yes. It's not just one thing that goes awry. It's not like, this is the perfect show, and then this last match, and they get messed up. It's a lot of little things that compile and then stack onto one much larger thing at the end. That make you feel like you didn't really get your money's worth. And this company is ultimately not going to commit to ending properly these big, long stories that you've been investing yourself in. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. Oof. Um, the show had some high points and some fun things here and there. There's a lot of build-up to this, as Al mm-hmm. said. Even though I only have a a snippet in time when I only exist once a year <laughs> and 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 see that even with you know everything that was going on, there's a storyline that should be the finish, but for me, like who knows what's gonna happen <laughs> so i I have that impression that like you know they could screw this up, and they don't disappoint me, and <laughs> yeah, I don't want to feel that way no obviously. but. I think that it was just, you know, and I'm not going to point fingers at people, but I think that there was a shift in power or a shift in, you know, what was going to happen and narrative and everything. And some people just feared for their jobs, whether you're a superstar, whether you're a ref or, you know, someone that had just joined the company, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. it's a trial and the trial extends to the fan base. Uh, they took a real risk in in planning things the way they did, and it really comes down to planning. They they get like we got all the great ingredients. You know, we got we got the best water, best flour, best tomatoes, everything. And oh, we're at, we don't have any cheese for this pizza. Let's throw some sawdust on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it looks the same. Uh huh. They could have had a wonderful product, and in fact, you know, they touted a wonderful product with the numbers and everything. Now you have a large fan base that is going to go home or not, or stay at home <laughs> with mixed feelings. Even if it, even if at the end of the day they're like, "All right, Sting won," they've undercut his victory. Mm-hmm. If they were trying to do some middle ground, they horribly failed at that. Yeah, you've got your moment to take your best shot at your primary rival, and this. Is the show that you put on? Come on, WCW. There are eight matches on this show. Of those three, Malenko versus Guerrero, Saturn versus Benoit, and DDP versus Hennig are really any good. The rest aren't necessarily awful, but they're pretty dull. This was a card that urgently needed an amazing ending. And, well, we've already covered how that certainly didn't happen. <laughs> Two amazing endings. <laughs> yes. I love the whole wrestlers watching the show display of unity thing, but this show really could have used a lot of the people who were shown sitting out there in the crowd. Mm-hmm. It's particularly sad to see Mysterio Jr. and Ultimo Dragon just chilling out there when they were so amazing on the 1996 show. And John, considering your love for the masked wrestlers on the last few shows, that must have particularly hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they were doing their part. <laughs> True. Mm. The changes to the card definitely hurt. Saturn versus Benoit is all right, but it's blatantly not Raven versus Benoit, which is what was being built towards, despite Raven being ill and unable to wrestle. 
I'm hoping that WCW honestly just thought he'd be able to, but even so, if there's any doubt, change plans earlier. And of course, Kevin Nash doesn't even show up, which just feels weird. One of the two guys that started off this whole NWO angle just isn't even here. And the other, Scott Hall, is here but doesn't have a match. How strange is that? Yeah, I think that in particular is why this show feels smaller than it should. The people who should be involved just aren't. We should be seeing Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, the original disruptors, finally taken down too. But the best we get is an admittedly nice jackknife powerbomb from the Giant in a promo segment. I recognize that WCW may not have really had a choice in the matter with Nash, but it still hurts the show. The show struggles to get any kind of show-long narrative going. It could have used some promos from the NWO and those fighting them. I get why we don't want Sting to talk, with him doing the brooding Dark Avenger thing, but heck, give the mic to the Steiners, to Ted DiBiase, to Lex Luger, to DDP. Have them build up their own matches and build up Sting. Instead, we get J.J. Dillon talking about drawing a name from a hat. Build up is thus left to the announce team, and they're all right, but definitely not as fun as my favorite Tony-Dusty-Heenan combo. Mm -hmm. The interplay just isn't there. Mike Tenay is a good announcer, and he gives some good analysis, but I miss the fun of three guys watching the show and squabbling hilariously the whole time. I didn't end up paying that much attention to the announcers this year, which is a shame, as it would have been nice to have something to wake me up during the duller matches. (laughs) And a big boisterous announcer argument over the Sting vs. Hogan match would have done a lot to build it up. These three pretty much just agree with each other, which kind of feels redundant. Yeah, a little bit. I would have loved if they put the announcers in the hat when they drew, and Dusty became <laughs> was the one that did D- it. Dusty ref, yeah, that would have been awesome. Yeah, that, that, that could that'd be fun. If I didn't get called in the middle, it's Lee Marshall. <laughs> Overall, this is just a poor show. It's far from the worst we've seen, but it just doesn't actually have that much to offer. I didn't find it tough to watch. It moves at a respectable pace the whole time, and there's not much slowdown. But the action it's offering just isn't that interesting. I wanted this to be much, much more than it was. It needed to be better. WCW needed a special, one-of-a-kind night. Instead, it put on a below-average show. Uninteresting matches, topped off by a screwed-up ending to an epic storyline. The show is unworthy of the year and a half spent building up to it. Extremely disappointing. Take the Infinity Saga that Marvel just did. Mm-hmm. So you have all these movies that build up in little ways, and then much obviously much more overt ways, like uh, the last two movies. So you get to the big final battle. Instead of them besting Thanos the way they do, they can't do it, and they decide to introduce Adam Warlock in Endgame. He comes in after everyone loses and kills Thanos. You're like, oh, I mean, it gets you the same place, but it's not the same. Yeah, that's kind of what this is like. It's not the same journey. Just a guy comes in out of nowhere, saves the main hero, apparently unjustifiably in this case, you know, but... Or if you want to put it in another way, the Fox deal happens earlier, and they decide to introduce Wolverine in-game. As cool as that would be, if Wolverine saves the day, you're like, oh, what happened to his character arc? Yeah. Wolverine's here now, so I guess that's good, but um, kind of thought, you know, Cap would stop him. Yeah. WCW did not land a knockout blow on the WWF with Starcade 97. Far from it. 
The WWF handily recovered in 1998, and in March, they had their biggest WrestleMania in years, hitting 730,000 pay-per-view buys, about 80,000 over Starcade 97. WCW would very much run even with the WWF otherwise, but it was clear WCW did not manage to claim the crown. Why is that? We can't assign all the blame to Starcade 97, of course. In late 1997, the WWF hit on the beginnings of one of their hottest angles in wrestling history, the feud between Stone Cold Steve Austin and WWF owner Vince McMahon. Mm-hmm. There's not much that WCW could have done about that once it kicked into gear. And let's be clear, Starcade 97 does not doom WCW. No. It just doesn't hurt the WWF. At all. We can never know how things would have gone if Starcade 97 had gone off without a hitch, because it didn't. But I think there's at least the possibility that if this had gone differently, if this was a more satisfying show, if the flaws we've mentioned had been addressed the WCW would have gained, and gained big. As we discussed when we spoke about Montreal, the WWF was in disarray in this time, with fans and performers alike angry. In a situation like that, people look for an alternative. If this show had gone smoothly, I believe at least a good portion of that disaffected WWF fan base would have come over to WCW and not looked back. If this show had shown that performances and storylines mattered more to WCW than egos, performers would have come as well. How much that hurts the WWF depends on the specifics and the numbers, but there's at least an intriguing possibility. With these unique circumstances, WCW could have done enough damage here to claim dominance, to be seen solidly as the number one wrestling promotion And this truly is their one and only chance to land that hard of a blow. These circumstances will never come again. In three months, the WWF will put its title on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Their brief period of vulnerability will be over, and they will never falter to that extent again in WCW's lifetime. Almost want to make their worst month ever, December. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually January, but... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And normally the bad stuff happens in January, but this time, yeah, December. Comes a little early. Yeah. <laughs> early Christmas present. Yep. All right. Match of the night and MVP. Al, you want to go first? Sure. So, there are eight matches in the show. There are three of them that are possible contenders, ones you've mentioned. DDP, Hennig, Benoit Saturn, and then the Malenko Guerrero match. For my record, it's only two that don't have screwy finishes. Because much as I will defend a lot of what happened in the Benoit match, it is, yeah, it's yeah. intentionally screwy finish for a storyline. I gave it a slight pass, but it, it doesn't escape the bar completely. So it comes down to DP and Hennig and Guerrero Malenko. I don't know, before, I just don't think everyone had their full heart and mind in the ma- in the first match, so they don't really hit the highs they should, which could argue it's a metaphor for how the show itself ends <laughs> up. Point. So for me, it comes down to the match that hits every point right and has a clean finish and gives you the ending you actually want to see from the storyline building up for about a year. And that's D.P. Hennig. Okay. That said, I don't think they hit the full breakout moment and D.P. Hennig to overtake just how good Eddie Guerrero is in his match. Mm. 
Dutch insult Malenko. But I think he's clearly driving the match, Guerrero is in this case. He's putting the current moment in the pauses that they need to get everything together properly. And then the second half, he has all the strong character moments, the running on his feet, the mm-hmm. trying to kiss his boots. That is hilarious. Yelling at the crowd, all of that stuff to make an absolutely great heel. And on top of that, he introduces the story element of attacking the knee and makes all his finish sequence around the knee. Mm-hmm. And so for me, MVP is Eddie Guerrero. Okay. John, match the night and MVP. Well, there were a lot of good matches, as Al said. You know, I mean, we had some certainly interesting ones, some that made me laugh, some that had good characters in them, and there there's certainly some high points in, in them where, uh, for me, it was like the storytelling was the important part tonight. And seeing some of those characters, like Goldberg, for example, like seeing just a glimpse of what he could be and seeing the genius uh, that is uh, Buff Bagwell um, playing the <laughs> most... I know I know he's super annoying, and it was annoying, but at the, at the time... I we'll see was... if that, if that, how long that mindset holds. It's okay. We'll give, <laughs> give him time. By far, the match of the night for me was the main event. Sting and Hogan, just because it is the one that I will think about. Okay. It is the one I will take with me. It is the one that makes or breaks this show, whether it's if broken is up to other people. But it is the one that I only match that I watch multiple times. And the only one that seemed to be the reason for the numbers and the interest in this show. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. All those things and the opportunities, whether they were taken or not rested on this match so that is why it's match of the night no that's a that's a fair argument yeah that it is the match of the night quite literally yeah that it is the reason this show exists and the only one that's probably close is the one that was right before that because it did change how the tv show mm-hmm. was, was going to be handled so those are the two main matches in my mind but even the match that came before it pales in comparison to the gravity the amount of sweeping changes <laughs> that would would come after that final match. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And my MVP is Bret Hart because he was the person that changed the outcomes of those last two matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I think he had the most influential role, even if it is whatever he is. <laughs> I don't know how to describe that role, but I do know that he was the person that made the changes possible. All right. Well, for my match of the night, I was also choosing between Malenko Guerrero and DDP Hennig. I'm going with the matches that made me happy for oh. match of the night rather than but but I, I think that's an entirely valid viewpoint, John. Yeah, that's, and that's a, I would not have considered that going into it, but now I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's a very valid viewpoint on on what a match of the night is too. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm going with the matches that I really liked. <laughs> you want to tell people about? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go with DDP Hennig, the same as you, Al. Both are good performances, and Malenka Guerrero has a lot of creative moves, but DDP Hennig isn't short on those either, and I just felt the match more. He had a really good build throughout the contest, and somehow managed to effectively tease the diamond cutter, while still making it feel like a surprise when Paige hit it. Sure. Which is a hard contrast to get. Yeah. It's very close, but DDP Hennig just edges out in front for me. 
And for my MVP, I'm going with DDP. Honestly, he had a really good in-ring performance tonight, but more than that, he had really probably the only moment I connected with emotionally in the whole show. Him hitting the diamond cutter so suddenly, winning the title, and racing off to celebrate with the fans in the crowd just felt good. And good without any caveats or flubs or controversies that dragged it down. It just felt genuine, and it made me smile. Okay. And that gets him my MVP, because I needed something to smile about on this show. <laughs> and that was a good moment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. He's definitely in consideration. Yeah, yeah, just, sure. just that shot of him in the crowd at the end, with everyone around him happy, piling around him, and him standing there with the belt triumphantly raised in the center of it all. Terrific moment. Just beautiful moment. So that gets it from me. Okay. And that wraps up our review of Starcade 97. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Join us next time for Starcade 98. Who's next? The challenge has been issued. WCW may have missed its chance to land a knockout blow on the WWF, but make no mistake... WCW is still in the mix, and on the strength of a swiftly rising superstar, maybe they can make sure that the two companies will keep trading the lead for years to come. For Alec Pridgen, for John Mullins, Starcade 97 can bite us. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And we won't say where down there. <laughs> down where? Hennig dubs himself flawless as he walks down the ramp, which is inadequate, which isn't, ha. Ironically, I screwed that up. Yes. <laughs>